on. Hit record. Yeah, I got it. And if Lane could turn his thing off because it comes up early, if everybody could turn their video off. No tech problems today. You'll see. No techs, no tech problems. All right. My hair plugs ain't pretty. Hot times in the city. I'm feeling kind of bad. All right. Am I frozen? Dan, no, right? No, you look good. It looks good. Show hasn't started yet. I have the air conditioner on. They think they think it will be better. I won't sweat as much. I don't know if you can hear the air conditioning, but we'll try it with the air conditioning. Welcome to the mop up for September nineteenth, twenty twenty two. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 83 degrees and partly cloudy. It looks like it's going to rain. The stock market closed today up about 200 points for the uh, Dow Jones Industrial. Near the end, it picked up. So the plutocrats won. They won today. Office hours, where everybody wins, it's every Friday night starting at 8 p.m. Go to my website for the link. That's the only way to guarantee that you'll find the link. I, I send out the invitation for office hours with my newsletter, which everybody should subscribe to. Go to my website, sign up for my newsletter. It didn't come out on Friday. I was on Majority Report with Sam Cedar. I recommend you go look that one up. It was pretty funny. <laughs> it was pretty great. And uh, then afterwards, I began working on my my newsletter, I wrote some things about the Queen that was so offensive, I decided maybe I shouldn't send this one out. It, it just was totally inappropriate. It involved hog-tying her and throwing her over a tree and hitting her with a piñata. I mean, it was just really tasteless. So I didn't send it out. Normally, I send it out on Fridays with the invitation for office hours, but... Uh, I had to send out the office hours invitation without my newsletter. But sign up for my newsletter. It's really great. It really is. We also have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please subscribe. It's the best way to share segments of this show. We carve it up and it's time stamped. Please share these episodes with your friends. We have no corporate underwriting. We have no way to get the word out. The only promotion we get is word of mouth. So please, if you're listening, copy and paste the the link and share it with people who you think would enjoy it. So we do have a YouTube channel. Check it out. And Invisible, the Invisible Ninja did a really great job clipping Andy and Sarah's live report from the Hardys in Mankato, Minnesota, 
where my pillow guy, Mike Lindell, had his phone seized by the FBI. So uh, great reporting by Andy and Sarah on the ground. Very dangerous in Mankato right now. They did a great job and invisible. Great turnaround. Great editing job. Check out Andy and Sarah's brilliant reporting on the ground in front of the Hardys in Mankato, Minnesota, where the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell, had his phone seized by the FBI. Check it out. It's a master's class in journalism. Also, I don't do this enough. We have the one sheet. It's back. So I want to thank the mods. They keep everyone in our chat room honest. So thank you, mods. We have two chat rooms, the Zoom chat room and the YouTube chat room. And the mods, they do a great job keeping the conversation on track, spotting trolls. I read the names of the mods on the show because we have a one sheet. Dan, can you uh, put it in the one sheet? You got the one sheet. So just if you don't mind, put the names of the the mods for tonight and... uh, I'll, I'll, I'll thank them later. Dan, that's Dan Frankenberger, who was responsible for this. If you don't like the show, blame Dan Frankenberger. Well, the lights are out in Puerto Rico. Once again, Hurricane Fiona so far has killed one person in Puerto Rico and left more than a thousand stranded. 1.3 million Puerto Ricans were left with no power this morning after 30 inches of rain hit parts of the island. Power has been restored so far to only 100,000 residents. President Biden last night declared Puerto Rico a disaster area. Heavy rain and winds as high as 90 miles an hour hit the eastern portion of the Dominican Republic, which is right around the corner from Puerto Rico, causing mudslides. Five years after Maria. That's right. The storms come after Puerto Rico has yet to recover from Hurricane Maria, which hit Puerto Rico five years ago. The Associated Press reports that only 21 percent of more than 5,500 official post-Hurricane Maria projects have been finished. Remember remember, uh, Donald Trump showed up and tossed out paper towels and then flew away? How quickly we forget that Hurricane Maria killed an estimated 3,000 residents of Puerto Rico and destroyed hundreds of thousands of homes. The federal government has committed $9 billion to rebuild the American territory. Puerto Rico is an American territory, which is home to 3.2 million people. According to the new book, The Divider, Trump in the White House, Donald Trump made an offer to buy Greenland from Denmark back in 2017 and offer to trade them Puerto Rico for Greenland. And that's not a joke. Well, floodwaters in Alaska are beginning to recede after Alaska was hit over the weekend with the hardest storm in half a century. Remnants of Typhoon Murbach hit Alaska's northwest corner over the weekend with gusts measured At 70 miles per hour, this is climate change. So far, no reports of death or injuries. Did I say climate change? I meant climate catastrophe. Some of this storm system has made its way down to California in the form of much-needed rain to help put out the mosquito fire 
in the Sierra Nevada foothills, which, thanks to the weekend rain, is now 34% contained. Japan is getting slammed by the worst typhoon in its history, forcing government officials to evacuate 9 million people. They're calling it Super Typhoon Nanmadal. Sounds like one of my boner pills, Nanmadal. They're calling it Super Typhoon Nanmadal, which so far has killed two people and injured more than 90. Nanmadal is a level five typhoon, which in Japan is the highest it can go. Well, it's raining in Alaska, mudslides in the Dominican Republic. Alaska is getting hit by a typhoon. Japan is getting hit by a typhoon. Meanwhile, Europe is now suffering its worst drought in 500 years. The EU now expects this autumn's harvest will be down 16% for grain, 15% for soybeans, and 12% for sunflowers. That margin is the difference between a farmer making a living and going broke. Dry rivers are reducing hydroelectric energy production by 20%. France can no longer cool its nuclear reactors by using river water because the river water in Europe is too hot to cool the nuclear reactors. The UN warns that drought in Africa puts more than 22 million residents around the Horn of Africa at risk of starvation. Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia are experiencing their worst drought in nearly half a century. Earlier this summer, the United States promised to deliver $1.2 billion in emergency food aid to the Horn of Africa. But here in the United States, parts of the American West are experiencing their worst drought in 1,200 years. Lake Powell is the second largest reservoir in America. It is now at the lowest level ever recorded. This is shaping up to be one of Pakistan's worst monsoon seasons on record. 1,500 people have died and roughly 33 million have been displaced. Pakistan only produces 1% of the world's greenhouse gases. It's being destroyed by countries like America, China, and America, and the EU, and America. Uh, yeah, 1% of the world's greenhouse gases. Pakistan's uh, really taking it. 800,000 cattle, a main source of income for farmers, have drowned. Pakistan's inflation rate before the floods was averaging 25%. It has now hit 500%. The flooding will contribute to more starvation around the world since Pakistan was the fourth largest producer of rice. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that the world is focusing way too much on the fighting in Ukraine and not on the real battle against climate catastrophe. Speaking of the flooding in Pakistan, Guterres said, I have seen many, many humanitarian disasters in the world but I have never seen climate carnage on this scale. He's talking about Pakistan. I have simply no words to describe what I have seen today. 
a flooded area that is three times the total area of my own country, Portugal. That is what's going on in Pakistan. Well, last week, the EU parliament declared that member state Hungary is no longer a democracy. The parliament, the EU parliament, backed a study calling Hungary a, quote, hybrid regime of electoral autocracy. It's a great term. It's where we're heading. A hybrid regime of electoral autocracy where you can have a strong man, right? But there's the illusion that he was elected. On Sunday, the executive branch of the European Union said it was prepared to suspend 7.5 billion euro dollars in aid to Hungary, which has for the past 12 years been run by this guy, Viktor Orban, who is accused of redirecting EU funding into the hands of politically connected cronies. That's how authoritarians stay in power. They take state funds and turn them over to anybody who, uh, you know, businessmen who support his party. Viktor Orban openly and proudly calls his Hungarian government a, quote, illiberal democracy. He proudly calls Hungary an illiberal democracy. In August of this year, Viktor Orban spoke at CPAC in Houston, where he was celebrated by Republicans as someone who knows how to get the job done. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban spoke to Hungarians earlier this year who were living in Romania and warned them against diluting their race by breeding with non-Hungarians. Here is Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban at CPAC last month regaling the Republicans, a party of Christian nationalists. Here he is regaling the Republicans with how he personally rewrote Hungary's constitution so there would be no mistaking that it's a Christian nation for Christians. Our constitution reads, the family and the nation constitute the principal framework of our coexistence. Hungarian state institutions are obliged to protect the Christian culture of Hungary. Hungary shall protect the institution of marriage as the union of one man and one woman. <laughs> family, ties, family ties shall be based on marriage or the relationship between parents and children. To sum up, the mother is a woman, the father is a man, and leave our kids alone. Full stop, end of discussion. <laughs> This guy is not a Christian. He's not a Christian. I'm a better Christian and I'm a Jew. This is why Tucker Carlson and so many Republicans think he's the future. Like Trump, Orban is corrupt, but he loves the cops. Just so long as the cops don't get ahead of themselves and start arresting the rich and powerful. 
Here he is once again at CPAC last month singing the conservatives' traditional refrain about law and order. Oh, how we hear about law and order from the conservatives, don't we? Law and order for thee, but not for me. We decided we don't need more genders, we need more rangers. <laughs> Less drag queens and more Chuck Norris. <laughs> we, believe, we believe there is no freedom without order. If there is no order, you get chaos. In Hungary, law enforcement agencies are not people's enemies. They are the guardians of freedom. Therefore, law should not protect criminals, but protect the victims and those who are defending the law. Police should be well respected. So, <laughs> yes. Notice the laughs gets big laughs. So see, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Well, a full suspension of EU funds for Hungary is unlikely, but they're going to it looks like they're going to take away about seven point five billion dollars in EU funding from uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. As to respond to last week's decision by the EU to declare Hungary is no longer democracy, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban said, quote, the only reason we don't laugh at it is because we're bored of it. It's a boring joke. It's the third or fourth time they've passed a resolution condemning Hungary in the European Parliament. At first, we thought it was significant, but now we see it as a joke. Five Syrian soldiers are reportedly dead after Israel attacked Syria's international airport in Damascus over the weekend. There are reports that two of the soldiers killed belong to the Iranian-backed paramilitary organization Hezbollah. Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah called for unity among Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese after the attacks. Reuters reports Israelis targeted the Damascus airport in order to stop the flow of war material from Iran to Hezbollah. Well, did you see 60 Minutes? On Sunday, 60 Minutes interviewed the president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi, who took office in August of 2021. Iran says... It's interested in reviving the 2015 nuclear deal made during the Obama administration, but then it was scuttled by Donald Trump. Joe Biden also has promised to renew the deal, but has failed to get it going. In the deal, Iran agreed to stop pursuing research into building a nuclear weapon if America and the European Union would put an end to crippling economic sanctions. Former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's running again for office, is opposed to the deal, saying Iran is not to be trusted because it funds terrorist groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria. On 60 Minutes last night, Leslie Stahl asked the president of Iran, Abraham Raisi, if he believed the Holocaust actually happened. Do you believe the Holocaust happened? that six million Jews were slaughtered? 
Look, historical events should be investigated by researchers and historians. There are some signs that it happened. If so, they should allow it to be investigated and researched. So you're not sure? I'm getting that. You're not sure. Yeah, there are signs that it happened, like uh, <laughs> Israel wants to what now? Oh. Well, Woody Allen denied reports that he's retiring over the weekend. The Internet was flooded with stories that the 86 year old film director was calling it quits after he wraps his 50th film this year. In an interview with the foreign press over the weekend, Allen was quoted as saying Wasp 22, which he is filming in Paris, will be his last. Allen said he wants to focus more on his writing. But today, a spokesperson for Woody Allen says he has absolutely no intention of hanging up his jodhpurs. Is it jodhpurs? Is that what like directors used to wear in silent movies? Is it jodhpurs? I forgot. Alan uh, still has difficulty getting his movies funded here in the States. Uh, it all started back in 2018 when his adopted daughter renewed allegations that he sexually assaulted her as a child. Watch the Kirby Dick documentary on HBO. Pretty convincing that the HBO documentary... It's pretty stacked against him. It's hard. If you watch that, it's hard to say he didn't. Well, Whitewater prosecutor Ken Starr died last week at the age of 76. Over the weekend, former President Bill Clinton, who was hounded by Starr and ultimately impeached for lying under oath about a blowjob that cost $45 million to prosecute. Bill Clinton. Over the weekend, Bill Clinton was asked if he had any thoughts on the passing of Whitewater prosecutor Ken Starr. Here is what Bill Clinton said. I'm glad he died. Huh? What, 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 what did you just say about Ken Starr? I'm glad he died. Bill, I know he tricked you into lying about Monica Lewinsky under oath, but Perjury is, is perjury, and you, and you shouldn't have slept with Monica Lewinsky. There was a power in balance. Do you want to apologize? Ken Starr died 76. How, how do you want to remember him? I'm glad he died. Bill, come on. You were sexually harassing. You were sexually assaulting the women in the White House when you were Arkansas's governor. You were you were set. You whipped it out in front of Paula Jones. Come on. You 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 were not the innocent party in all this. Is there anything you'd like to say about the passing of Ken Starr? I'm glad he died. OK, Bill, this is really uh, you're not being nice. You know, you're, you're a former president. You want to sink in the gutter like Trump or rise above it all? I'm glad he died. All right, Bill, this is your child. You're an absolute child. Ken Starr, come on. Well, I, I read the obituary, and I realized that his family loved him, and I think that's something to be grateful for. And when your life is over, that's all there is to say. But I, I was taught not to talk about 
people that I, you know, I have nothing to say. Except I'm glad he died with the love of his families. <laughs> I was taught. My mother said, uh, don't, uh, if you have nothing nice to say about somebody who deserved to die, don't say it. That's how I was raised. So apparently we had the same mother. You know, I'm cooler. I like it with the air conditioning on, but I, I just wonder if you could hear it. In the interview over the weekend, Clinton said, this is interesting, that NATO expansion in the 90s uh, played no role in Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine earlier this year. Now, if you remember, Clinton took office in 93, right after the fall of the Soviet Union. In the interview, Clinton said he immediately offered NATO membership to Eastern European countries because he felt they had the right to remain safe from Russia. Clinton said he even began talks to arrange for Russia to join NATO. The Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland joined NATO during his presidency. Then under George W. Bush in 2004, NATO was joined by Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. All of those countries had either been part of the Soviet Union or allies of the Soviet Union. In the interview, Clinton said, had America not expanded NATO, Putin's invasion of Ukraine would have happened sooner. Bill Clinton said, quote, about having uh, Poland and Hungary join NATO. He said, quote, you're supposed to tell the Poles they should live the rest of eternity with insecurity that Russia won't try to come after them again, or the Hungarians or the, you know, all the others, the Baltic states. Really? After what they did? You think they ever want to be back in the Soviet Union? It's an interesting I'd like to discuss that uh, later on. That's Bill Clinton's perspective. Uh, well, what about uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who passed away uh, earlier this month? I'm glad he died. Oh, come on. Mikhail Gorbachev? Really? I'm glad he died. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that's right. He, wasn't he your friend? What about your friend Boris Yeltsin? I'm glad he died. Wow. Wow. You're just a nasty, nasty man. Vince Foster? I'm glad he died. Okay. Um, we won't go there. We will not go there. What a nasty man. Four million women marched to protest the inauguration of Donald Trump in 2017. And that was big. It was the women's march. It was the women's movement. And then somehow there was infighting and they broke apart because of partisan bickering between supporters of Israel and supporters of the Palestinians. How did this happen? Well, a new article in the New York Times, and you really should read this. This new article in the New York Times says Russian sponsored Internet trolls manufactured the split between Jewish women and Palestinian women uh, by taking information about Linda Sarsour. She was one of the four leaders of the 
the movement. Linda Sarsour is a Palestinian-American. She's an activist as well as an observant Muslim. The Times says that 2,642 tweets were amplified by Russian bots calling Linda Saussure a radical Islamist, Islamist, a pro-ISIS, anti-USA, Jew-hating Muslim who has been seen flashing the ISIS sign. One of those tweets, for example, early on was able to gain so much traction it got 1,686 replies, 8,000 retweets, and nearly 6,500 likes. More tweets from the Russian trolls had similar responses. So within weeks, according to the New York Times, Linda Sassour left the women's organization. And according to the New York Times, Russia was able to manufacture a lasting split within the women's movement. I'm going to talk to Dr. Harriet Fraud about this uh, later on. She's one of the founding mothers of women's liberation. She talks about how the CIA plucked Gloria Steinem, who openly admits to being a spy for the CIA, and Gloria Steinem made it about gender and not about class. The CIA did not want the women's movement to focus on class, only gender. That's what Dr. Harriet Fraud tells us, and that's what Gloria Steinem uh, did. And nobody can explain her, the, the mysterious funding for Ms. Magazine. Anyway, Linda Sassour, she is the Palestinian-American was a rising star within the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders was a huge fan. But according to the article in The Times, since Russian trolls targeted her, she receives very few speaking opportunities. And when she does, she is targeted by trolls. The women's movement has not recovered from this split. It's a it's a, a rupture within the progressive movement. And... Uh, According to the New York Times, it was all amplified by Russian bots. Russian President Vladimir, not Russian President, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is demanding a war crimes tribunal after mass graves have been discovered in Izium, part of Ukraine's Kharkiv region, taken back from the Russians on September 10th. So far, 440 bodies have been discovered, most of them showing evidence of torture. Ukrainian President Zelensky says as parts of Kharkiv were liberated earlier this month, his army discovered at least 10 Russian torture chambers. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, quote, we stand with Ukraine in pursuing accountability for these crimes. I guess that means America is finally going to join the International Criminal Court. Anthony Blinken. You know, there are guys uh, charged with the terrorist attacks on 9-11, the guys charged with the attacks on the USS Cole. These guys have been languishing in Gitmo for decades, Anthony Blinken, because we cannot put them on trial because we tortured them. You'll get thrown out of court. America has set up this bullshit, this new bullshit judicial system called military commissions. And 
That's because we violated every international and domestic law by coercing confessions from these guys using torture. So now we're holding these trials down on Gitmo in Cuba. Uh, they're called military commissions. They're supposed to be going on right now. I doubt we'll ever be able to get a guilty verdict because we tortured these guys hundreds of times. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was tortured at least 200 times. We waterboarded them, stripped them naked and forced them to clean up other men's feces barehanded. These charges would not hold up in any Western court of law, including the United States, because we tortured them. So now we've got these bullshit trials called military commissions, which are an abject failure. And they're going on right now. See how quickly uh, they come to an end. They're never going to end. This stuff is going to go on and on. You can't when you torture somebody, you can't try them. Well, back to Joe Biden. He was on 60 Minutes Sunday night. As Grace Jackson, who runs our China desk, I love saying that, Grace Jackson on our China desk, she has explained that America's one China policy relies on something called strategic ambiguity. Does America recognize one China or do we recognize Taiwan as being separate? Strategic ambiguity means our president responds yes and no. Since he took office, Joe Biden has constantly said that should China attack Taiwan, America would jump in. But that's in direct violation of our strategic ambiguity. So there's a little dance that goes on. Joe Biden says if China attacks Taiwan, we're sending in troops. And then right after a carefully choreographed statement comes out from our State Department saying that America refuses to say whether or not it would come to Taiwan's aid. Well, it happened again on 60 Minutes last night. Scott Pelley asked Joe Biden what would happen if China attacks Taiwan. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes. Yeah, before the interview even aired, the, the White House, as usual, walked back the president's statement saying, it was official American policy not to disclose how it would react to China invading Taiwan. That is strategic ambiguity. He's not making a mistake. Grace Jackson explained this. Biden knows exactly what he's doing. He's, he's being uh, cagey. Biden was then asked about his son Hunter and whether or not Hunter would be a liability not just to his reelection, but to what he'll be able to accomplish should Republicans win the House in November and then spend the next two years looking into his son's laptop. I wonder what you would like to say about your son and whether any of his troubles have caused conflicts for you or for the United States. I love my son, number one. He fought an addiction problem. He overcame it. He wrote about it. And no, there's not a single thing that I've observed at all that would affect me or the United States relative to my son, Hunter. 
you know, I'm going to take it easy on Hunter. Uh, I saw this picture. I posted this picture of him. He is uh, suffering, uh, if you can see this. And addiction is a serious problem. Mental illness is a serious problem. Uh, and I think I've been a little rough on him. I saw this picture of him, and I thought, uh, yeah, he screwed up, but he's an addict, and the Republicans should leave him alone. I do think the laptop is going to be a serious liability for Joe Biden. I do. And I do think that, well, I'll shut up. I'll shut up. Nancy Pelosi. Oh, wait a second. Good news. Before we get to Nancy Pelosi, in the 60 Minutes interview, Joe Biden also announced the COVID pandemic is over. It's over, he said. He said, we still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Okay. He then went on to say, everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think the fact that here I am at the Detroit Auto Show uh, is a perfect example of it. Okay. I still wear my mask. I'm going to get my fourth vaccine. It is estimated that 464 Americans died yesterday from COVID. 31,700 were hospitalized and 61,700 new cases were reported. Biden is still trying to get nearly $23 billion in COVID funding passed through Congress. Free COVID tests are no longer being mailed out. Be careful out there. Nancy Pelosi was in Armenia over the weekend where she condemned what she called Azerbaijan's illegal and deadly border attacks that have killed more than 200 soldiers in the past week. Two years ago, Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a full-scale six-week war resulting in Azerbaijan recapturing land that Armenia had kept for decades. Last year, America formally attached the word genocide to the massacre of 1.5 million Armenians by the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century. For decades, America was reluctant to call it a genocide for fear of offending Turkey. Speaker Pelosi, what do you think of the fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan? Sickening. I'm sorry, you, you find it what? Sickening. Ah, okay. You find it, what's the word? Sickening. Okay, now can you pronounce Azerbaijan for us? Sickening. I know I can't. Yes, I, can. <clears throat> I can't pronounce certain words. Uh, well... I correct myself on this show, and I have a correction from last Friday's show where I praised King Chuck for, lo King, I'm sorry, King Charles, for lobbying uh, then uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair. I said that I praised King Charles be because he had lobbied Tony Blair uh, to outlaw fox hunting. I said King Charles was on the right side of outlawing fox hunting. 
I'm wrong. I got that wrong. King Charles did lobby Blair, who was planning to outlaw fox hunting, but Charles wanted Blair to change his mind and keep fox hunting legal. In a letter obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, Charles said that people trying to outlaw fox hunting were concerned less about protecting the fox and more about hurting the people who go fox hunting. Charles wants fox hunting to be legal again. He insisted in his letter to Tony Blair that fox hunting was environmentally friendly, unless, of course, you're the fox. He then added, quote, fox hunting relies entirely on man's ancient and indeed romantic relationship with dogs and horses, unquote. Our romantic relationship with dogs and horses. Yeah, a little too much information about your sexual peccadillos. Peccadillos? Peccadillos. Armadillos. Peccadillos. I stand corrected. Okay. Pe it's peccadillos. I, I need to start watching television to learn how to pronounce words. I, I'm like an immigrant who's come to this country, the way I pronounce words. I, I need to watch television. I'm paying a price. Well, where am I? Okay. Britain's new prime minister, Liz Truss, campaigned on a promise to get tough with China so it came as no surprise last week when the Speaker of the Commons, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, announced that Chinese officials would not be granted a private audience with the Queen's coffin like other foreign dignitaries. But that decision has been reversed over the weekend. Chinese Vice President Wang Qishan over the weekend was given special access to jump the 14-hour line to visit the Queen, who was lying in Westminster Hall. No word as to what they discussed, other than the Queen occasionally shouting, Getting out of here, I'm still alive. Getting out of here, I'm still alive. I don't know. Do we know if she's really in there? I'm not trying to be rude. It just seems like if you're waiting a day to see the Queen and... You don't get to lift it up and look inside. It just seems to me they should plant maybe 15 coffins around London so people could only have to wait in line for an hour instead of 15 hours. Just little Yankee ingenuity. That's, you know, that's my suggestion. Well, two million royal subjects flocked into London today to watch the Queen make her final journey home to St. George's Chapel near Windsor Castle. Prince Philip was buried there last year, but in keeping with the Queen's wishes, she will be laid to rest right next to Top of the Pops host, Jimmy Seville. Also buried in St. George's Chapel is most of Ching King Charles I, who was beheaded in 1649. If memory serves, and I may be wrong on this, Queen Elizabeth's mom had the head of King Charles I hollowed out to be used as a wall sconce lighting fixture in Balmoral Castle in Scotland. 
Yesterday, members of the royal family walked behind her coffin, which sat atop a 123-year-old gun carriage pulled by four royal steeds. That's four horses. That's, that's got to smell dreadful. I'm going to follow five horses' asses. The imperial state crown that rested on the queen's coffin as it lay in state had 2,868 diamonds, along with 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, <coughs> 269 pearls, four rubies, and the mummified severed ear of a Mau Mau. Today's funeral was attended by 69 leaders from around the world, 70 if you count Liz Truss. The Queen was the head of state in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and so the funeral was attended by New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ahern, who is also head of the Labour Party in New Zealand, <coughs> Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, who is also head of that country's Labour Department, and Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, whose mother slept with Mick Jagger. And I believe he is also leader of Canada's Liberal Party. Japanese Emperor Naruhito, as well as nearly 24 kings, queens, princes, and princesses, from Holland, Spain, Belgium, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden were in attendance as well as the presidents of France and Germany. The president of Israel also attended when reminded that the queen died on the 8th and is now being buried on the 19th. He called the entire thing a shiva gone wild. Well, president of Brazil, Bolos Bolsonaro was also there. He belongs there. He's a royal asshole. Bolsonaro is running for re-election October 2nd against former President Lula, who is expected to win, which is why, like Trump, Bolsonaro is already complaining of election fraud and is not expected to evacuate the presidency without a fight. Russian leader Vladimir Putin and his puppet, the president of Belarus, were not invited because of their illegal invasion of Ukraine. There are credible reports that Putin secretly helped fund backers of Brexit in 2016, who won, as well as the vote for Scottish independence in 2014, which failed. Also not invited were North Korea's Kim Jong-un, Nicaragua's Daniel Ortega, and Prince Harry's Meghan Markle, although I think Meghan Markle did bust through the gates without an invitation and show up. In order to guarantee their security, British security services insisted world leaders arrive for the funeral crammed inside several buses. The only leader permitted to arrive alone was Joe Biden, who, because of his advanced age, was deemed too flatulent to share a bulletproof vehicle sealed shut. A bit of a surprise when the bus pulled up in front of Westminster Abbey, along with the world leaders disembarking were several Guatemalan migrants who had been promised work and housing by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The migrants reportedly felt right at home inside the bus, seated along 
alongside all those other political puppets. 10,000 uniformed police officers were on duty, including, this is really interesting, Rod Stewart's wife, Penny Lancaster, uh, who has become a, uh, a special constable for the city of London. She's been doing this since 2021. She's actually doing something with her life. Penny Lancaster. Here she is. Uh, let's see. Here she is. Today, protecting people during the Queen's funeral. Another picture of her. That's Rod Stewart's wife. Here they are meeting, then Prince Charles, and here she is with, with uh, Rod Stewart. Kind of interesting. Uh, Rod, I guess, is pushing 80, and Penny figured being a constable was the only way to get her hands on a nightstick that was hard and firm. Well, there were also thousands of plainclothes police officers, 2,500 uniformed members of the military, snipers on rooftops, surveillance drones, all ready to pounce on anyone who even thought about shouting F the monarchy. Because so many royal subjects become obsessed with the Windsors, Great Britain has a fixated threat assessment center they have a fixated threat assessment center, which keeps an eye on those who are deemed overly fixated on royalty. Officers from the fixated threat assessment center keep a list of people to visit and make sure they're taking their medications. Kim Derrick, a former British ambassador to the United States, told The Washington Post that the royal family refuses to be in a bubble. So in order to maintain their popularity, they, they have to be out and, and pressing the flesh. Darish, former British ambassador, adds that uh, so much of today's procession that we watched on television could not be in the open here in America because there are so many guns. They don't have guns in Great Britain. That's why world leaders are allowed to walk step out of the bubble. The funeral was the most expensive one ever. Queen Elizabeth's mother's funeral in 2002 cost more than 5 million American dollars, and that was just the bar bill. Security for Prince William and Kate Middleton's 2011 wedding was $7 million. So how much is the royal family worth? The Sunday Times of London estimates the net worth of the entire royal family to be north of $23 billion, but they have enormous expenses, like maintaining several castles and keeping Princess Di locked up in that secret underground bunker in Wales. The family properties are known as the Crown Estate, with land and buildings in Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland, and they alone are said to be worth $18 billion. So what is King Chuck worth? The Crown Estate is owned by King Charles, but he can't sell any of it. The profits, all the profits are turned over to the government each year, which then pays him 20% in what is called a sovereign grant. So the government gets 80% 
of Prince Charles's earnings. He only gets 20%. What are they worth? What if King Charles comes to his senses and says, you know what, this is ridiculous, I quit. On his own, by himself, he is said to be worth $1 billion. But Buckingham Palace, which he doesn't like, is technically not his to sell. He does, however, reportedly own Sandringham in Norfolk, which sits atop 20,000 acres, and of course, Balmoral, which sits atop 50,000 acres in Scotland, where Charles and Camilla performed the royal suffocation on Queen Elizabeth II earlier this month. All of this is conjecture because the royal will is kept secret as per a court ruling dating back to 1820. We do know that King Charles is a bit on the frugal side. The Guardian reported over the weekend that since King Charles's former residence is no longer Clarence House, where 100 people worked for him, those workers have been put on notice that they should expect to be laid off. Long live the king. The news came as those staffers were working around the clock to prepare Charles for today's funeral. Britain's Public and Commercial Services Union called this nothing short of heartless to announce the firings during this period of mourning, which officially ends today. All right. It is reported that the future the future monarch, Prince William, who is 40, inherited millions back in 1997 when the Queen of England had Princess Diana, quote unquote, killed. They faked her death in 1997 and Prince William got most of her money and he gets to keep it. Uh, Prince William is technically a billionaire ever since Charles became king and William inherited the Dukey of Cornhole. I think I mispronounced that. It's the Dukey of Cornwall. You sure it's not the Dukey of Cornhole? Princess Anne, King Charles's sister, who is considered the hardest working royal, is said to be worth $52 million. Her Gloucestershire mansion sits atop 700 acres, said to be close to Princess Di's vacation bunker, where MI6 and MI5 deploy extraordinary rendition. Uh, all right. <laughs> okay. Be nice. I actually like the royalty. Prince Andrew, the Queen's favorite, is worth a few million less than his brothers and sisters ever since he agreed to pay one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims about $10 million to settle a lawsuit accusing him of rape. Uh, Andrew is technically still listed in the royal line of succession, but is no longer considered a working royal due to all his suck sessions. <laughs> so, uh, it, wow. The queen uh, left, she did leave him all her corgis, which are said to be worth collectively $800. So there's that. He's got the corgis. And the good thing is for Andrew, corgis, uh, their testimony doesn't hold up 
in court. How about Prince Edward? Prince Edward is 58. His wife, Sophie, is... His wife is named Sophie? I have three aunts named Sophie. She's Jewish? Prince Edward married a Jew? That's good for him. Anyway... All of the wives, of all the wives, Queen Elizabeth is said to have treated Sophie like a daughter, which means she kept her at arm's length and remained emotionally distant. Edward is worth roughly $12 million, uh, not counting his collection of severed heads bequeathed to him by his uncle, Lord Mountbatten. And then there's Harry and Meghan, Prince Harry, 38, and his wife, Meghan, are worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $22 million. But that is expected to double ever since Harry and Meghan got into the podcasting business. And I just want to welcome them. Uh, welcome to this wonderful industry of podcasting. We, we could really use your help. So thank you. <clears throat> wow. The midterms are 49 days away. The party that, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> little post-nasal drip, drip. The midterms are 49 days away. The party that controls the White House normally loses the House of Representatives. Republicans need uh, to flip just five seats to impeach Joe Biden. According to The Economist, the party that controlled the White House kept the House during the midterms only uh, once the century. That was back in 2002 when George W. Bush was president and the Republicans kept control over the House because 9-11 was four, 14 months earlier. Let's see how that election is going. According to new polling by the New York Times, a generic congressional ballot shows the Democrats leading the Republicans by two percentage points. Uh, the Economist warns, however, that polling could be way off because Trump supporters are notorious for refusing to take part in surveys. So <clears throat> the polls tend to skew towards the Democrats. The Economist says they're polling takes that into consideration when weighing these responses. But The Economist is saying there might be some uh, surprises on Election Day. Joe Biden's approval rating, according to NBC News, 45 percent of Americans approve of the job Joe Biden is doing. 52 percent disapprove, according to NBC News, his approval rating is upside down seven by 7%. When asked, do you approve of the direction this country has taken? This is an NBC poll out today. Only 27% of Americans say America is heading in the right direction. 68% say it's heading in the wrong direction. The new Trafalgar Group poll in Pennsylvania shows Lieutenant Governor and Democrat John Fetterman leading Dr. Oz by two points in the race for Senate. Josh Shapiro, the attorney general who is running for governor against Mastriano, a bigoted racist who was at the Capitol on January 6th. Josh Shapiro is leading 
by two points. That's from new polling out by the Trafalgar Group. Meanwhile, election officials around the country report they are getting bombarded with requests for information regarding the 2020 election from Trump supporters. This is an attempt to make it impossible for election officials to do their jobs for the upcoming midterms. The Washington Post asked 19 Republican candidates for governor and Senate in several closely watched races whether or not they would accept the election results in their race. Seven Republican candidates said yes, they would accept the results, while 12 refused to say. J.D. Vance, Dr. Oz, and Herschel Walker all said yes, they would accept the results. Beto O'Rourke, who's running for governor of Texas, refused to answer. Either did his opponent, Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Marco Rubio, Ron Johnson, who's running for re-election in Wisconsin, Carrie Lake, who's running for governor of Arizona, Ron DeSantis, who's running for, re, uh, for re-election as governor of Florida, uh, and Doug Mastriano, who mentioned earlier, they all refused to guarantee that they would accept the election results. Pretty scary stuff. Former Trump White House spokesperson and candidate for governor of Arkansas, Sarah Sanders, is returning to the campaign trail after undergoing treatment for thyroid cancer. Sanders is 40. Her thyroid was removed after doctors spotted a cancer earlier this month. Sanders' father is Mike Huckabee, who served previously as governor of Arkansas right after uh, Bill Clinton. On Saturday, Donald Trump hosted a sparsely attended rally in Youngstown, Youngstown, Ohio, where he endorsed 14 candidates running for Congress and governor. Trump is all in when it comes to Ohio. He beat Biden there by eight percentage points in 2020. He's endorsed uh, more candidates in Ohio than any other state except Texas. Trump also officiated the wedding at his Bedminster golf course last month for Max Miller, his former White House aide, who also received the former president's endorsement for Ohio's 7th Congressional District. Stephanie Grisham, the former Trump White House press secretary, says Max Miller, her ex-boyfriend, physically abused her the day they broke up. Miller has filed a defamation lawsuit. He has endorsed by Donald Trump. Well, the rally was held in Youngstown, Ohio, and Marjorie Taylor is now, Marjorie Taylor Greene is now Donald Trump's official opening act. And she got things started by appealing to the intellectuals in the crowd. If the government wants to replace parents and brainwash our children, well, you know what? We will just defund the Department of Education. Yes, education is brainwashing. Yeah, you have. Uh, uh, yes. And then uh, Marjorie went after AOC and she attacked the new Green Deal. And I got to say this, this made sense. But we know that cheap gas, it won't last, will it? No. You want to know why? 
Democrats all worship the climate just like AOC. But let me tell you something. We worship God. We worship God. I swear to you, if Dave Cyrus were writing a movie and this character was in the movie saying that he'd, he'd never work again. They say this. Come on. You're insulting our intelligence. Yeah, I know you want a, a stupid Republican, but nobody's that stupid. Uh, well, apparently there are other people who are as stupid as Marjorie Taylor Greene, like Carrie Lake, who is the Republican candidate for governor of Arizona. You can call us extremists. You can call us domestic terrorists. You know who else was called a lot of names his whole life? Jesus. And he never stopped. He never stopped. They called them names right up until his death. So why should we care what Joe Biden thinks of us? I have... Do you think that our founding fathers really cared what King George said about them? I don't think so. Yeah, our founding fathers also didn't care what Jesus said either. They were deists. I've mentioned this before. Our founding fathers didn't want any religion or mention of God in our government. She said that Jesus got called a lot of names all through his life. Uh, I, I remember, it, I think it's the book of Thomas, a young Jesus was being insulted and he said, I'm rubber, you're glue. And the guy turned into glue. That's from the book, I think it's Thomas, pr pretty sure. Well, that's Carrie Lake. It doesn't stop. Uh, J.R. Majewski is, uh, <laughs> he's an Air Force veteran. And he was at the Capitol on January 6th. So that means, of course, he has Donald Trump's endorsement to unseat Democratic Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur in Ohio's 9th Congressional District. We had Congressman, Congresswoman Kaptur on the show, I think about three years ago. So uh, here is uh, the brilliant J.R. Majewski warming up the crowd in Youngstown, Ohio. Brilliant guy. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is J.R. Majewski. J.R. Majewski. My pronouns are patriot and ass kicker. How about fat ass kicker? He looks like, he looks like Frank Luntz, right? The pollster? He looks like Frank Luntz. That's right. That's right. Folks, I love God. I love my family. And I love this country. You left out <laughs> chili cheese steak fries. And I'm sorry, Joe Biden. I'll never apologize for having the will to fight for all three. Yeah. How many veterans we got in here? Police officers, stand up. Let's give you a round. Oh, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. How many veterans do we have here? Stand up. Uh, maybe not the best demographic to ask to stand up. Round of applause. Yes, let's get some applause. Yeah. 
And now he's posing for that picture. See, they're all standing and his photographer shoots him over the shoulder. So he gets the veterans, all those people standing. That's a great shot, right? Tell you what. What? Speaking at a rally for a guy like me that grew up in uh, Toledo, Ohio. Yeah. I got eagle bumps. Mm, eagle bumps. We don't get we don't get goosebumps here. If you're at a Trump rally, you get eagle bumps. Am I right? Am I right? That's where Don Henley punches you in the head. <laughs> you're covered in eagle bumps. What a f effing idiot. What a just a worthless piece of shit. J.R. Majewski, who was there uh, January 6th at the Capitol, and he's a piece of shit. Uh, anyway, speaking of pieces of shit, J.R. Majewski went after the, the Green New Deal. He doesn't like the Green New Deal. And here's, here's what he said about the Green New Deal. I'll be the working member of Congress that's going to be the tip of the spear. And I'm going to turn that Green New Deal brown like the turd it is. Wow. There's like a little kid in the audience. And you would think a little kid, watch it again. There's a kid to his left. And you would think saying something like that would wake up a 10-year-old kid. Watch the kid. Not even nothing. Nothing. I'll be the working member of Congress that's going to be the tip of the spear. And I'm going to turn that Green New Deal brown like the turd it is. <laughs> this is what this is a candidate for office. He's going to turn Green New Deal brown like the turd it is. When has J.R. Majewski, when's the last time his turds were anything but blood red? Yeah, I'm, I'm the bad guy. Anyway, then the headliner came out. Donald Trump. And again, this always makes me happy because he's divisive and it makes me have faith in our system when he said this. Mitch McConnell is a disgrace, and I hope you're going to do something about it, J.D. He's a disgrace. So that's, you know, calling McConnell a disgrace. That's checks and checks and balances. And then he threw red meat at the crowd. And I'm calling for the death penalty for drug dealers and human traffickers. Yes, uh, he's calling for the death penalty for uh, human traffickers. Uh, here we see him parting with Melania and their old friend Jeffrey Epstein. Well, speaking of human traffickers who, you know, the death penalty. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe the death penalty. Maybe it's a good idea. I wonder if Matt Gates thinks it's a good idea. Congressman Matt Gates reportedly told a Trump White House aide that he personally asked then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to arrange for a presidential pardon to put an end to a criminal investigation looking into allegations that Congressman Gates transported underage girls for the purpose of having sex with them. That's according to newly leaked uh, closed-door testimony before the January 6th Select Committee. The Attorney General at the time was Bill Barr, who authorized the investigation based on testimony from 
Gates's best friend, who is now a convicted sex trafficker, Donald Trump last year insisted Gates never asked for a pardon. And uh, Trump is the king of endorsements. He's not going away. He continues to reshape the GOP in his own image. With last Tuesday being the last of the primaries in the lead up to the midterms, the Washington Post tallied Trump's endorsements to see how he did. And he did remarkably well, suggesting that uh, his hold over the party is getting stronger. It's not weakening. It's getting stronger. 81% of non-incumbents who were running in Republican primaries and got endorsed by Trump won their contests. So that's 45 wins and 10 losses. That's for non-incumbents, challengers, 45 wins and 10 losses. 45 uh, candidates who were endorsed by Trump won and 10 lost. That's amazing. The Brookings Institute issued a report last week saying that candidates who weren't officially endorsed by Trump but campaigned while speaking favorably about Trump outdid traditional conservative Republican candidates. Candidates who self-identified as pro-Trump won 40 percent of their primary races, while Republicans who didn't mention Trump won 30 percent of the time. 36% of all Republican candidates this cycle call themselves MAGA. 36% of all Republican candidates this cycle call themselves MAGA. And for the senators and Congress people who voted to impeach and remove Donald Trump for office, there were 13 Republicans, 10 House members, three senators, who had voted to remove Trump from office. They were running for re-election. Trump ran against them. Only three survived the primary season to go on to the general election. Thirteen Republicans who voted to impeach and, and or remove Donald Trump from office. Only three of them got through the primaries because Trump targeted them. This Republican Party is in the, the hands, in the grasp of Donald Trump. Well, we have a royal uh, watcher who knows the king, uh, grew up with him, and we're going to be talking with him in a second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday. And... Uh, go to my website to sign up. And while you're over there, sign up for office hours. Coming up, we're going to take a look at the royal family from someone who grew up with them. But first, some music from Mike Steinel. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me. But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die If 
15 bucks an hour, five days a week, 52 weeks a year, and 32,000 years. I know it's a long time, honey, to 34,020. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. All I really need is a second job or a third. Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day. I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there. Yes, I do, by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Well, we're back. And uh, we have a special guest. I've never met this gentleman before. I believe Dan booked him. His name is Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. Uh, and he's on the line from, uh, I believe, London. Are you there, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling? Good evening, Mr. Feldman. Ah, it's not, I, May I start by saying it's an incredible honor for you to have me on your show. Yes, it is, sir. Yes, yes, it is, sir. Griebling, and I'm I'm told that you grew up with Prince Charles. That your estate abutted Sandringham, and that you played with him as a child. Is that correct? I played with him not in the biblical sense. However, yes, we did uh, cavort in the fields and uh, torture the Odin um, animal. You know, like kids, all kids do, yes. Mm -hmm. What kind of king? Uh, they say you can tell, show me uh, the child of five, I'll show you the man of 50. So, Sir Arthur Grebe Sreebling, what kind of king will he be? Well, at, at the age of five, he was already uh, showing great prowess in the necessary art of uh, lying, mm. uh, dancing, and spending vast amounts of money. <laughs> he was there at five. He already had it down. Yes, especially the money. He could and especially the money of other people. So you're saying yes. he's great with money? Great in as much as he didn't hold on to it very long. 
I remember, oh, we, we weren't five. We were maybe about seven years old at this point. Uh, he found me uh, weeping uh, at my mother's doorstep. Hmm. And uh, he asked me why, and I was reluctant to tell him that my mother and father had broken up. Hmm. Uh, by which I don't mean they departed. I mean, uh, I found their bodies <laughs> with limbs severed. Yes, it's always, that's always tough when, when, when children discover that their parents have broken up and they wonder, was it my fault? Did you feel it was your fault that you caused the breakup? No, of your I, I, found, I found it as character building. Uh, yes, it set me on a course uh, for life, which uh, made me rather strong. But uh, Charles uh, picked me from the... the uh, step he brushed me down and said do you have any money on your custody <laughs> that's so I sweet had, yes i had four and six which in today's money is i don't know yeah i had four and six and he took it off me to teach me in that disastrous hour of need just he nudged me over the line with a, a little bit more character building. And I'm grateful that he's, he took the last pennies I had as a now destitute uh, orphan. But and, you still uh, live yes. on your, your family estate, as I understand it. We, is, we live very close to each other, yes. We, well, what is the name of your family talk, estate? Uh, it's Rimmington Hall. Rimmington Hall. Yes. And and that goes up right up against Sandringham? Yes. yes so what kind yes. of neighbors? That's the, the, that's one of the Queen's castles. What kind of neighbor was the Queen? Did, did you have to put her garbage out when she wasn't there? Did you water the lawn? What, did she do anything? Was she a good neighbor? Well, the, you, you must consider the vast uh, expanse of land both of our families owned. Uh, so putting their things out would, would not be feasible. However, we did realize that for a long time, uh, the lovely corgis that they have on their estate uh, very much are wild in that part of the, the, the country. And uh, not only wild, but they increase significantly uh, when it starts to rain. We don't know why that is. If we have a massive downpour, we seem to wake up the next day with a field full of small yapping dogs shitting and pissing everywhere. So it rains dogs, but not cats. No cats, only dogs. dogs. That's that, yes, and they're corgis. They 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 because those are the queen's favorite. Yes, they're called corgis because uh, in the event of a cricket game, when the corgi ball has been misplaced, you can replace it with that small dog. And mm. back the hell out of it out of the uh, stadium. <laughs> Club, clobber it. So, you know, you, in, with the ball, you the most you can get with one hit is a six. And with a corgi, you get a 12. Mm. Now, if we were to look up your name in Burke's Peerage, what would we see? Uh, we'd see a lineage that goes back as far as Agincourt, um, when we apparently... Came from good stock, but uh, not from England, sadly, from France. Right, right. A bit of, bit of a 
bit of cavorting going on between the uh, the nations. Right, and yes. the hall you live in. What is the name of it again? Ribbington. Ribbington Hall. Yes. A- and how big is Ribbington Hall? Oh, it's very large. I don't, I, but I've I've yet to use a tape measure in my entire life. <laughs> but you you, you say I you're destitute. Other people, I employ other people to use tape measures. Uh, so I've, I've not measured it personally. It's big. And, it's and mummy and daddy's abode. And they left me there all alone once their heads and limbs had been severed. Right. It's it's always tragic when, when children, uh, when their parents break up. You're destitute? How do you pay the bills, Sir Striebling? I eat off the land. Basically, oh. uh, there are enough corgis to go around all year. So there's a what? There are enough corgis to go around all year. You eat corgi? Yeah. Every time it rains, the corgis multiply, and I scoff them down uh, with a bit of uh, nettle soup. Nettle soup. Yes. What? And how do you? So you you make a soup out of the corgis, and yes. they're tasty. Do you, you have any very tasty? Do you have any recipes? Ring the neck. Ring the neck is the first thing. Right. Uh, leave the fur on. Oddly leave enough. the fur on. A lot of protein yeah. in fur, right? Not lot of great deal of fiber. Right. And fiber. Uh, um, comes out the other end like a, a bar of soap out of a you know where. Yes, of course. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Now are these so, yeah, recipes? I, these recipes for corgi. Were these passed yeah. along to you by the Queen? I, I'm afraid no. No, no, no. I, I sort of had to work it out on, on my own. But being left alone as I was at the age of seven in a vast house with a vast amount of land with no assistance, well, I I thought, well, they look like they're made made of meat. Mm-hmm. They're like a, they resemble a very small, furry, pointy-nosed pig with pricked-up ears. Right. Right. As a child. Well, so I just talked a lot. Yes. For those of you who are just joining us, we're talking with Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. He is uh, landed gentry. He, not, not to be confused with Sir Arthur Striebling. Yes. And, uh, and you grew London. up with uh, Prince Charles. You're about the same yes. age. Yes. You are part of the peerage. You must be exhausted. Yes. What was the funeral like today? Well, there uh, we're, we're not we're on somewhat of a sticky wicket here, you see. Oh, so you didn't um, have a good seat? Where you had to sit at the back of the church? I sat right at the back of the uh, the back of the whole proceeding. I was back home. Uh, we were back home. Yes, yes. You, so you watched. So far back, I wasn't there, yes. You weren't there. So is that because of your health? Uh, would that were so? Now, sadly, we, we did grow up uh, as close friends, myself and Charles. Yes. But uh, due to an incident uh, with a local wench, mm. shall we put it? Yeah. Uh, we fell out at the age of 25. So you weren't invited, and you're not going to get an invitation to the coronation, I would assume. No. No, so I'm afraid you- not. However... I wish the country uh, all of the greatest luck with the new king, because uh, frankly, they're going to need it. 
what was it like watching it at Ribbington um, It was painful. There were far too many peasants on view. Mm-hmm. The streets were lined with all manner of detritus. Uh, the pageantry was uh, somewhat amusing, as was the means of transport for the dignitaries from around the world. However, the queen, she did a great job. Yes, she did. Absolutely. A phenomenal job. Always stoic. Always stoic. Yeah. Always. Stiff upper lip and a stiff lower lip, come to think of it. Stiff, quite frankly, a stiff everything. Yeah. At the moment, Yes. Um, she played the part fantastically well. Um, she's something the country has relied on for 70 years, and it's a constant in our society, much like uh, syphilis and poverty. Yes. Well, we've been talking with Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. He is the Lord of Ribbington Hall. Do you yes. take in tourists? I understand that a lot of these big the states to to pay the bills will often take in guests. If I decide uh, to go, well, I, I take them in, but I tend not to let them out. So, uh, <laughs> I keep getting the odd call from the police. Yes, oh, you're a fucking genius. You really, I, I knew it. Will you come back on Thursday? To, for, uh, it would be a pleasure to. Once again, uh, discuss the the importance of the aristocracy within this great land of ours, yes. You just made my day. Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling, thank you so much. This is a very sad day, and uh, you, you lifted us up, and, and I thank you. Uh, we will be back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. David Feldman what Show. What do you mean colonialists everywhere, by the way? I'm sorry? Thank you. Good evening, colonialists. Everywhere. Oh, thank yes. you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, sign up for my newsletter by going to my website. And uh, while you're over there, sign up for office hours every Friday night. When we come back, we will be joined by the brilliant, the brilliant, the brilliant Ethan Hershenfeld. <laughs> It appears that the formula is cut and dry. We're so 
Those other flames. If you get canceled and you have to punt, just say you were a victim of a witch hunt. Feeling kind of bad for writing this song. I've been mowing it over all day long. If you're apologetic and that's what you do, I did mean to throw some shade on you. So go ahead, get it off your chest. Say you're sorry, it's for the best. Professor Mike Steinell, who won't be joining us today. He is, uh, there we are. Can you hear me? What's yes. Oh, there we go. Joining us is the star of Thug, Thug Jew. Uh, and I think it's you, not me. It's not, it's nothing. It's going to, it's about to stop. It's an airplane. Oh, we're getting testy, are we? No, no, no. It's just because last time I sat out here, the wind, but this time I was like, there's zero wind. So I know that this is going to work just fine. Do you get a lot of airplanes? You're in Cape Cod, I take it, right? Yeah, there's no airplanes. There's one a week. <laughs> but it's a loud one. <laughs> oh, God. Are you in a bad mood? I'm moving. No, I'm not. You're but I will, I, I will move inside if you want me to. Today is now is the name of the book. Today yeah. is now. Everybody Maybe I am in a bad mood. Maybe you've diagnosed something. I don't know. Let's talk about. I was it. upset. I'll tell you what I was upset about. I was upset. I some neighbors are having a baby, and I got we got them a a nice little uh, a little gift like some little T-shirt, baby size. And then they sent a thank you note. And then I texted back, thank you. And I, I thought, what am I doing? This will never end. Right. We'll be thanking each other for eternity. You should mail them a thumbs up. That means it's the end. Of, right? That's how it you know a text is over. What, when somebody oh, says, right. you, know, you do a 
Thumbs up. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Thumbs up is weird. Are you pissed Thumbs off is... that they're having a baby? Is the baby going to be loud? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not pissed off. It's a blessing. What makes you angry? Do you have rage issues? Unto us, a child is born. Do you have rage issues? <laughs> if you uh, could reach through the screen right now and throttle my <laughs> neck, would would that make you happy? Not at all. Do you think my, I could make my, a living? Do you think? Do you think I could sell myself to just like go around and you can punch me in the face? What do you think I would make? No. Just to... Oh, someone just someone just someone just texted me a thumbs up, <laughs> right on cue. Yeah. All right. When's the last time um, you got into a screaming match with somebody? Oh boy, long time ago. I have to say, a long time ago. But uh, uh, yes. You okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the funeral. It's the it, it's nonstop. Every time you turn on the TV, it's it's nothing but but sadness, right? It gets. I saw a little. I saw a little bit of it this morning I'm on the New York it Times. Right now, I'm not really? looking at you. No, I'm looking at the funeral cortege nonstop. Why? But it's not our queen. You have no queen in that fight. You're, I know, but. She just reminds out of me respect. Of, out of a, she reminds me of a better time, right? A better generation. She reminds me of a time when the women would go to the what was called the beauty parlor and have their hair set. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to the beauty parlor. That's what my grandmother did, and she got that hair like that, like the, the parlor. Helmet. Yeah, the yeah. helmet hair. Yeah. 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 Does it remind you of your mortality today? Sing. I thought she was going to make it to 100. Yeah. It's funny. the That whole obsession with 100, and it, and it makes sense. And I heard someone explain it once, the decimal system. It's all just born of the fact that we happen to be a species with 10 fingers and 10 toes. That's the whole origin really? of that. Yeah. That's it. That's why we started counting to 10. And that's why a lot of things are based on a metric system or... Uh, things are divided into 10 because that's how many fingers we have in front of us. Good so thing there's nothing magical use, about the 100. Can imagine if we used our testicles to come up with math? <laughs> yeah, everything base would 20, if you count your toes, and yeah, if you count your ears or whatever. Yeah, You're good at math. Um, I heard a rumor that you helped Natalie Portman with calculus, <laughs> and that because no, of you, because of you, you did, you did such a great job helping her with calculus she was uh, hired by the Jet Propulsion Lab in California. Is that true? If that were the case, then she would have. Uh, we would have been denied all of her wonderful performances yes. on the silver screen. Now you're in beautiful Cape Cod. How long are you gonna be there yeah. for? I have, I'm shooting something on the 28th in New York, so in like 10 days. So you're gonna be I in Cape to be Cod there. for 10 days. I don't know, unless something else comes up. It's, I, you know what I'm sad about in part? Uh, Loki is 15 in one month, and he's, he'll be joining the Queen uh, in... What, a, tr be... a trial before the International Criminal Court? <laughs> for all the crimes committed? 
No, he's doing okay, but I'm I am a little down about that. He's not long for this world because I'm I'm at that stage where you have to start deciding when you're keeping him around just for your own benefits. Right. Uh, he's still having fun and doing this and that, but he's really enfeebled right. in many ways. There's, so that's that's a little sad. It's very sad. Yeah. When when pets, yes. Yeah. I've, I've been I've been through it way too many times. Yeah. It, oh, someone just asked how the refugees are on Cape Cod. I'm not near that that army base, but uh, I did think it would be great to visit them. Yeah. My Spanish professor in uh, college, who was wonderful, was from Venezuela. So that would be a talking, a little conversation starter. So, But I, there was a great article in the Times about this one guy who got shipped to D.C. from San Antonio, and he's having he's making a real great go of it. Did you read that thing? No. He's living in a homeless shelter, but he's saving up enough money to get out of there. He has multiple jobs. He's learning English on Duolingo. He's 29 years old. He's now able to send 150 bucks once or twice a month to his kid in Venezuela, which has changed the kid's life. And he's just, uh, he's thankful that he got on that bus when they offered him that option. Uh, How so. immoral is it to, to take them and ship them I, I don't, I find the story to be so grotesque. Yeah, it's grotesque. These guys are professional trolls. That whole trolling thing was, which was supposed to be from the bottom up. Now it's trolling from the top down. They, they, they enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kidnapping and it's, I think it is illegal. I don't think it'll be prosecuted, but it does seem like it's human, human trafficking. It's kidnapping. So it's, it's false arrest. It's all sorts of things. The alternative is what? The ICE detention facilities? Um, I don't know. I don't have a solution. I mean, is just, not knowing too much about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they have to be detained. They're, uh, they could just be they're doing not... in Texas or in Florida or in Arizona what they're doing in D.C. or in Cape Cod now, which is they get this asylum petition and apparently that takes several years to move through all the desks it has to move through. And in the meantime, they can get settled and uh, then, you know, get things get things in order and live off live live off the grid. Yeah, supposedly. Yeah. So. Which we need. We have a we have a shortfall of tens of millions of, of workers. And here are people who are willing to work. We have. So it, it, it doesn't seem like a problem to me. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the uh, the, the right wing uh, uh, media was they were loving it. I heard a little bit of Fox uh, on the radio, and uh, they were loving the idea that these people in Martha's Vineyard were incensed. But in fact, these guys were were welcomed, and the locals helped find them shelter, and they they did what they could to help them. So yeah. you know that that false narrative is baloney. I'm texting with a friend. I felt like you weren't with me completely. Thank you for admitting that. No, no, I, I, I'm texting with a friend who <laughs> is, is a Republican. He's just gone over oh. the dark side. Brilliant guy. Something, there's yeah. a screw loose. And I asked yeah. him, I go back and forth, because I, I, I like the guy. And I, I'm just curious how somebody could just go off the deep end. All he does is send me... Articles proving that Democrats 
are craven. They get away with murder. They're horrible. And I write back, okay, so what are we going to do about the problems in this country? And he says, the number one problem in this country is the Democratic Party is a cult. <laughs> I'm thinking, really? It's the, wow. That's the number one problem in the country is that, that, that I'm part of a cult. You're right. not interested wow. in helping these immigrants. You're not interested in solving climate change. The number one problem is Democrats. Yeah. It, it's incredible. It is incredible. And um, I have a friend who does a similar thing, but I don't allow him. I don't engage. Uh, he'll send me the occasional uh, video from Joe Rogan. And I just uh, I I deleted him. I think it is. I think people who hate government come to Washington to destroy it. They have no, the, most, most Republicans, all those Republicans, by the way, Lindsey Graham, I think, is drinking a lot. It, it, don't you see the signs of, of an alcoholic where he's- I haven't drinking? actually, I haven't seen, I, I mean, I've read things he's, he's said, but I haven't seen him speaking in, in, in a year at so least. So they go to Washington, D.C., literally to do nothing, to break the system. They don't like Washington. They don't like the government. And the people who vote for them want to break the Democrats. That, that's all it is. It's not about discussion or fixing. It's about breaking our spirit. That's all yeah. they want to do. They, they, they don't believe in the state. So what are you going to do tonight? You know, that sounds like the way I behave in a relationship. Yeah. Well, you want to win in a relationship. <laughs> you keep score? It's a tie. It's um, a tie. What so am I doing tonight? I'm, uh, are you alone? My, yeah, my, uh, my father and, uh, and his wife are coming over. We're going to eat something. And um, Fish? Oh, you don't eat no. fish? You're not, you're, you're not, you don't. No, I'm cooking all manner of uh, of vegetable. I actually am frying. I fried green tomatoes, which I'd never done before. I have all these tomatoes that didn't ripen. I so fried I them, uh, Fanny Flag instead. And it I, she tastes I don't get like that. fried green tomatoes. Fanny Flag wrote fried green tomatoes. Oh, okay. All right. I never saw it. Never read it. How do you get the name Fanny? Fanshawn. It could be short for Fanshawn. Oh. We had a relative named Fanshawn. What if you're a Calipigian and your first name is Fanny? That that what? must be traumatic. I don't know what Calipigian is. You don't you don't know what a Calipigian means? No. Oh. It means it's a uh, person with a protuberant posterior. Oh, oh, okay. So, like, uh, what's your name? Uh, Kim Kardashian or right, right. J Lo? Right, right, right. Would be. Yeah considered calipigian all right i'm writing it down as Important opposed to words. me I'm, I'm a big asshole but that's a completely different that's that's different um i had an audition this morning for a tv series where it was for the role of a guy who who's like basically a uh, a hairdresser mm -hmm. a niche hairdresser guy and very high end so I once played a hairdresser on, on high maintenance and I did the audition. I, I intentionally made him pretty butch. 
He was like a butch Russian guy the way I did it because I wanted to avoid the cliche mm-hmm. of making him kind of queeny. Right. So, but I found myself, I decided I'm going to send them uh, two takes, one queeny and one butch. So we were doing the takes and then my, my friend who was doing the readings with me was like, Ethan, you're not really uh, pulling off the butch thing. Like the writing and the scene, it was so... Which one is butch? Just for, help me out here, not to insult you, but which take was butch and which one was queenie? So it was just the scene and the character. Somehow it was hard not to, not to lean into the, I guess, cliche. Yeah. Of, of, uh, Did you get the part? I submitted it today. I'll, I'll be surprised time, if I got this one, but we'll see. Every time you mention an audition, you get the role. Everything, it's good luck. I hope so. This one is a recurring, a recurring role. I think it's HBO Max. He appears in a couple of, of, uh, of episodes. So we'll see. And when does the Dr. Samuel Benjamin documentary come out? How can we watch That's, it? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to pin the director down to see when there will be a rough cut that we can look at and decide what else we need to do. But it is soon, coming soon. Good. As they say. Yeah. Everybody should go to Amazon right now and buy Today is Now. I have to use my Amazon voice. It's okay to go Amazon. 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 You have Amazon. <laughs> the only place you can buy Today is Now is on Amazon. Okay. In the future, I'm going to have to self-publish it or publish it elsewhere. Apparently, there's something called Ingram. Do you know what Ingram is? No. Some sort of a book supplier. I that, know what uh, an engram is. Isn't that something from Scientology? I don't know. Oh, you're pretending you don't know. <laughs> this is when you get to be an operating Thetan 5. You... I'm a Thetan 7, so I'm really oh, not allowed to do these jokes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, can I send you some literature? Yes, please. I'm looking for, for right. something. Um, what else can I tell you, David? I want to hear about Loki. Oh, well. When did you first get Loki? Um, my girlfriend at the time uh, met him at uh, Animal Haven on Center Street in Soho, across from the tombs. Um, and he was a four-month-old. Uh, and we, we, had no, we had no specific plans of getting a dog, but she said, go look at Loki. And I looked at Loki, and it was love at first sight. So we adopted him in 2007. What kind of dog is he? He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd mix. He's just a great dog. He's been, of that litter, he was the sweetest, most engaged, just very calm, just looked you right in the eye. And he already, they had taught him, sit and paw. And we've never expanded his repertoire, <laughs> even though he's clearly one of those dogs who had a capacity for like a vocabulary of 1500 words. Right. We just never, it was not of, of interest to turn him into a, a circus performer. Um, when I walk the streets of New York, I'm taken by puppies and old dogs, old dogs just going for their walk. Yeah. They've seen it all. They, they're glad to see you, but not too excited. I love <laughs> old dogs in New York. And yeah. They just, if you pet them. Yeah, he, he's in that category. And so I have a photo. The first photo I have of him is when the shelter uh, delivered him to my apartment, which is a fourth floor walk-up. So I'm holding him like a baby. 
This is like a little football and carrying him up the stairs. I have that photo. And now I'm carrying him again. So it's the full circle. So it's one flight of stairs here. He can make it up with a little help, but down I carry him. And so there's a lot of carrying him. He's now, he used to be 75 pounds. He's now 68. So it's a nice workout. Um, and, uh, that's Loki. Yeah. I'll send, I'll share some photos next time. I'll, uh, I have some great photos of him over the years. How many dogs have you had in your life? When I was a kid, we always had dogs. We had, uh, my dad would always find these strays and, uh, bring them home. So sometimes we had three dogs. We always had at least one. We had about three or four dogs that were for the long haul, but along the way we had at least a dozen total. And then as an adult, I've had about, uh, well, Loki was my first. That Loki was the one who, who, uh, awoke, uh, awakened my, my latent vegetarianism. And, uh, he was the, he's been the source of a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We had, when my so. kids were young, we had always had three dogs and four cats. So, and there was, oh, wow. there was one dog we had, Cody, lived yeah. on the streets at, literally out of his mind. Literally. We had to put him, I swear to you, we had to put him on Prozac. He was terrified uh-huh. of everyone and he would jump and bark and never calm down. And then about eight years into it, his muzzle started getting white and he stopped jumping. Right. Like when I would come home, he would, he would stop jumping. And yeah. I remember telling him, pick up your game or you're going to live on the street again. No, it yeah. was very. Yeah, we was, hired you. It was so. We signed sad. you for your jumping ability. He was Tigger, you know, and and he was. I could I, see him. Time is a cruel sculptor, as they say. It is. It's cruel, and we'll uh, we'll let him go, and uh, it's no longer joyful for him. But he's still getting some kicks out of everything. Ethan, so, um, Ethan Hershenfeld, thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. Um, say, say hello to and, your dad uh, for you, me. I will. I'll bring him for a hello later. Um, and uh, we'll see you on Thursday. I hope so. Bye-bye. Thank you. Ethan Hershenfeld, everybody, everybody should go right now to Amazon. I know, I know, but you get special dispensation. Go to Amazon and uh, pick up the uh the book today is now howie klein is coming up i'm going to play his theme song even though it says he's from uh whatchamacallit san diego where it doesn't rain let me see if i can do this howie klein here we go it's not playing what's going on hang on no why are we not? Well, hmm. Okay. I don't know what's going on. Oh, now it's going to work. Two hours into the show, we have a, a tech problem. No, I can't play the music. Why can't I play the music? Hmm. Oh, let's start again.
him right here, he's on the line. How we climb? How we climb? Got a good idea who might be a winner. He tell you why he's cooking up a vegan dinner. How we climb? How we climb? He's oh so smart. He got a lot of brains. He lives in San Diego where it never rains. How we climb? How we climb? What he got to say gonna blow your mind. Put your hands together for how we climb. How we climb? Howie? All right, I'm having technical problems. Howie. Why am I... Howie, are you there? Why can't I hear? Okay. Give me a second. Hmm. Boom, 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 boom. What's going on? Ah... Hey, Dan, do you have your shoes? I don't have, I, I can't figure out what, what's going on here. Uh, how's your day going? It's going great. You just got done pouring heavily here in yeah. Rochester, so it might be heading your way. Okay. Uh, I thought I had this connected, and apparently I don't. What do you think? Push the plug in. Yeah. Why doesn't it work? Hmm. Dead air. That's what it is. Um, Everything is good. Yeah. Let me, let's play some more music from uh, Professor Mike Steinel. Well, I have a quiz prepared if we run into big trouble. Oh, I think we're going to we're going to need it. Uh, we'll see. OK, uh, when we come back, hopefully Howie Klein will be with us. I'm having some issues. Here's some more music from Professor Mike Steinel. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bello novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. 
I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high-speed parallax motor because I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender A 50 tequila in case I go on a bender My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light We're back. Uh, Howie Klein is here. Dan, can you hear? Howie, can you say hello? Because we're going to do it the old-fashioned way. Howie? Can I say hello? Yeah, hello, hello, hello. How does that sound, Dan? Yeah, we can hear Howie. Hello. He's a little low, but hello, we can hear him. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> He's a little low. All right. Joining us is Howie Klein. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, and he writes down with tyranny. Welcome, sir. If you could talk louder, because we're doing this really old school today. All right. Is this loud enough? Dan, is that loud enough? Yep, that's great. That's good. If you could, yeah, if you could just talk at that volume. Uh, we have to have some candidates on the show. Yes, you're supposed to call me every. Uh, I know. For the last month. I've been so yes. Who who are some of the candidates we should be paying attention to? Are you talking about the ones that we should bring on or that we should be uh, uh, paying attention to? Both. I mean, and are you talking about House or Senate or both? Let's start with the House because they bear they don't get enough credit. Attention. Okay. So, um, un unfortunately, a, a lot of the good candidates got wiped out by uh, APAC and the crypto billionaire. So, so we don't have that many great candidates right now. The one that I thought would be good to bring on right away would be uh, Derek Marshall, who's running in San Bernardino uh, County here in California. And he's a really good candidate. He was a, uh, a Bernie Field organizer in Nevada. And um, he's running against a, uh, uh, you know, a Trump kind of guy. They're all Trump kind of guys uh, named Jay Obernalty. Okay. And, uh, you know, he's real good. He's real smart. Very sharp guy, and I think he would make an interesting uh, guest. And I don't think we've ever had him on, or have we? I don't think so, no. No, I don't think so either, Derek. So Derek would be good. I don't know if we could get her to do it or not. Uh, she, she's really focused so much on the district that, that it's hard. Uh, it would be hard, but not, not impossible. And if you want me to, I'll try with Jamie McLeod Skinner, who uh, is in Oregon in a new district. She In the primary, she beat... Arguably the worst, uh, well, one of the worst uh, Democrats 
in the House, uh, Kurt uh, Schrader, and uh, and now she's the Democratic candidate. So she's she's a, a solid progressive. He was a blue dog who uh, voted against the uh, raising the minimum wage. He was the only member of the House who was still in the House who had voted against raising the, uh, the minimum wage. He also threatened to tank every piece of legislation that ever tried to include lowering uh, the cost of prescription drugs. So anyway, Jamie beat him. Now she's up against some crazy Trumpist. Yeah. So she would be an interesting candidate. Christine Olivo in uh, uh, South South uh, Florida would be, uh, She, I think we'd get her to come on. And then there's a guy up in uh, northern New York State um, called uh, Stephen Holden. And Stephen uh, is running against Claudia Tenney. Uh, she, you know, basically what you say about Claudia Tenney is she was Marjorie Taylor Greene before anyone knew about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Hmm. All right. Uh, and, and there are a few others. Chris Deluzio in the district that Connell Lamb is leaving uh, west of Pittsburgh. He's a good candidate also. That, yeah, there are a few others. Okay. Uh, none of them are, you know, household names. Like I said, a lot of the big candidates who uh, would have been, you know, great to get on uh, were beaten by APAC and, uh, and and the crypto billionaire. Oh, another one that's very good is Sum, uh, Summer Lee in in, uh, in Pittsburgh itself. She she's very good. At right. That. Okay. Let's then say- there's uh, then there are some incumbents who might be good to get on. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know for sure if we can get them, but I think we can get some of them. Uh, Marcy Cap. I've had Marcy Capter on. Is she going to lose? Okay. Is she going to lose? Be, she'd be good. She's not very. She's not a real progressive, but she's running against uh, you know probably the worst of the Republicans. Uh, so she would be an interesting guest. Uh, Blue America doesn't endorse her because of her policies, but she's right. you know she's she's not terrible. Right. Uh, you know, for an anti-choice Democrat, and. Um, uh, let's see. You knocked someone right out of my head just now. I that I was about to say, but uh, oh yeah, I was going to say Matt Cartwright is very good. So he's so he's in a, a Trump district. Trump won the district by about four points, and Matt at the same on the same day, Matt won the district uh, by close to four points. So it's an interesting dichotomy that people were going in and voting for Trump and then turning around and voting for Matt. And Matt's not some Republican light uh, Democrat. He's a full blown progressive with it with an a ranking from uh, progressive punch and he's an old friend and if he has time he would do it uh i'd have to ask him we have to you know be sure that we want him on on the day we want him because we're not going to get a second go at it right let's uh let's talk about two stories that i'm not uh keeping up keeping up to date on one is tom barack his trial starts and you write it yeah and the, well, I mean, it, it, today was jury selection day, uh, day, first day of jury selection. And he's accused of violating FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Doesn't he has a, he's accused of a bunch of things, you know, lying to the FBI, also uh, obstruction of justice. He never um, he never filed as a, um, a foreign agent, but he was working for the United Arab Emirates. But, I mean, that doesn't even begin to, to tell what this guy was doing uh, in, in his uh, opportunities to um, influence the, the uh, uh, you know, Trump. Uh, he, he's a crook. He was the, he, I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard about the, uh, the Trump 
inauguration committee. That was a uh, you know a, a way of people bribing Trump because it's it's not regulated the way other uh, um, uh, things are by the FEC, other organizations that, that where you can donate. So people were donating tremendous amounts of money, unregulated money to Trump, it was pure bribery uh, scheme, and then the money was going uh, was, was still unaccounted for. So a lot of it was going into Trump's pockets. They say also into Barack's pockets. It was it was the height of uh, of Trump era uh, uh, corruption, and, and they brought in over a hundred million dollars. And he was in charge of it. He was the chairman of it, and uh, you know he, he brought all his cronies in to help him run it. It was like I said, it was it was it, it you know it was just another example of his corruption. His his whole life has been based on corruption. When he was um, you know when he was just a, a young guy, just out of college, he worked for uh, uh, Nixon's. Uh, you know, personal attorney, Kalmbach, I think is how you say his name. Right. And he worked for that firm. And here's a guy in his 20s, and they send him to live in Saudi Arabia with the idea of, uh, you know, currying favor over there. Uh, he got involved with, all you know, Saudi princes. He was a squash partner, partner for a Saudi prince. And since that time, in his 20s, he has been a, a, an American uh, who has been like a fixer and a... And a uh, a go-to person for anyone who wants to do corrupt business in the Arab world, in, in, in basically in the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia. Would he, Dubai, would he have Qatar. been, would, would he be on trial if he weren't Donald Trump's best friend? No, he wouldn't be. He'd be in prison. He wouldn't be on trial. He'd be in jail. Trial would have happened long ago. Okay. Let's talk about... Let's talk about Ron DeSantis. Is it, or, or as they as they say in Florida, Ron DeSantis? Okay, is it just cruelty? Is is it you write that it's he's trying to out cruel Trump? That's right. There's no policy behind this. Does he have any? Is there anything legitimate? What would the policy be of him taking Florida taxpayer money, and hiring some coyote? And 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 tricking Venezuelan refugees. We're not talking about illegal immigrants. We're talking about refugees, lying to them, cheating them into getting on airplanes and flying them from Texas to uh, to Massachusetts. What's what's the policy involved there? That he's going to do something about Texas? I, I don't I don't get it. I mean, you know, there. I mean, if they were in Florida, I could see. Not that I would agree with him, but I can see why he would do this kind of thing. But he's not even doing it in Florida. You know, there are 200,000 Venezuelans living in Florida. He made a big, big mistake. I mean, they, you know, they were, they, he's definitely going to lose some votes in his own state because of what he just did. And and not even just Venezuelans. There are a lot of Latino, Latinos down in, uh, or Hispanics down, down in Florida who don't like this. They don't like what he's doing. There was no reason to use these, you know, you, you, just very distressed human beings uh, as political pawns. And remember, David, these are people, whether you, whether you agree or not about the Maduro government in Venezuela, these are people who were fleeing from a government that the Republicans never stopped talking about how bad the government is and, and it's a, a dictatorship and 
you know, and, and saying such horrible things about it. Here, these people are coming not to sneak into the country, who apply as refuge for refugee status, and he scoops them up, tells them that they're going to give them, uh, you know, uh, preferential treatment for jobs. As they get on, just get on this plane, you'll get eight weeks worth of uh, cash. You'll get food. You will uh, get you social security cards. All this stuff, all lies. Gets lures them onto the plane, and then dumps them off in, uh, in on a small, wealthy island off the coast of Massachusetts, Martha's Vineyard, where you know there's there's no reason for them to be there, none. Right, right. Let's, so what policy did you have in mind that you? I, I don't know. I I haven't been following it that closely because it's so sad. And the only video I've seen is the Martha's Vineyard incident where they're hugging these people and they're shipping them to a military base and they seem happy. And I, with with cursory attention, I begin to think maybe maybe DeSantis is not doing this for the cruelty, but to draw attention to the situation. What's the situation of, of Venezuelan refugees trying to get uh, get into the country through Texas? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, he's supposedly running for governor, but he seems to be uh, running for president in 2024 already, just skipping the governor part. Right, right. He's And he's beating Charlie Chris, correct? He is. I mean, you know, Charlie Chris is trying to, you know, Charlie Chris, from what I'm hearing, I don't know if I told you this last week, I'm hearing very from very good sources that he is, he's just given up. He, he doesn't even think he's got a chance uh, even to come within 10 points of DeSantis. And he's just running against uh, Rick Scott if, in 2024. And he's just, you know, trying to build up uh, everything he can build up so that he can make a credible campaign against Rick Scott. And when does DeSantis declare he's going to run for president? And what's that going to be like, him going up against Trump? I don't know Trump? if he'll run against Trump. I think he, he's kind of hoping that Trump doesn't run. And then he'll, and then you know, the, the day that Trump says he's not running, you'll see them all lining up in front of microphones saying they're going to run. There's, you know, a dozen of them. If he says he's not running. Trump. He, yeah. He's cooked. Once he's no longer a candidate for president, all the th then there's no trouble locking him up. I, I don't know about that, but I, I think, and I've said this right from the beginning, that all of this uh, threats about locking him up is not really a threat about locking him up. It's just to get him to agree to not run. Uh, and then they'll just, you know, they're, they're never going to put him in jail. That's just not going to happen. Uh, you know, that. Nobody wants to see an American, I do, of course, and you do, but basically no one in the establishment wants to see an American uh, president put in jail, let alone shot between the eyes by a firing squad. Uh, right. So, right. Uh, you know, I, I think they're just trying to make a deal with him not to run. The, the, what, what's awful about that is that we're going to wind up, if, if that happens, with the with DeSantis running, and, you know, you can easily make a case that DeSantis is worse than Trump. But I don't see a cult forming around him, a dangerous cult. Am I wrong? Um, well, I don't think you're wrong, but I think that that's part of what DeSantis was doing with shipping those uh, Venezuelan refugees 
uh, you know, up to the up to the north to you know where Obama lives. The idea being that he can he's trying to show the MAGA crowd that he could be as cruel and hideous as Trump is. But you're right; they they don't have the same cult. He doesn't have a personality at all, and um, so. But that isn't the only danger that Trump poses. Remember, Trump was is a danger to democracy itself, not just because of his personality. And he was just incapable of carrying out the things he wanted to do. I read a very interesting story today by the guy who was the assistant attorney general under George H. W. Bush. Until 1990, he when he left the post, Barr came in. So he and he knows Barr, and he's a he's a you know very well credentialed Republican. Is this Bruce uh, Fine? Sorry, is his name Bruce Fine? No, uh, I, I wish I could remember his name, but I can't remember. But it's not okay. Bruce Fine. In any case, he um, he knows Barr very well. He's a he's a you know well known Republican uh, from the establishment wing. And he said that, you know, the reason that Barr is making, uh, you know, making all this trouble for Trump right now, uh, you know, he's on Fox News denouncing him and stuff, is because Barr, Barr has an agenda, which is which is to have an authoritarian presidency without checks and balances. That's something that he's wanted for his whole life or his whole career, and he feels that Trump's not the one who can accomplish that. Presumably, he thinks it's it's DeSantis who can accomplish that. Or, or I don't know, or Ted Cruz, or whichever of those uh, junior fascists uh, he thinks is the one, and uh, and that's why he wants to get rid of Trump. Uh, and you know, I think DeSantis can be very, 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 very dangerous. And I'm not saying that Trump that he's better or worse than Trump, but I'm just saying you can make a case that he's worse than Trump because Trump couldn't get anything done the first time around, whereas DeSantis uh, can. Uh, the thing with Trump also, though is that now he is probably capable of doing much worse than he did in the first term. I think he probably learned some lessons from the first term. He's certainly not going to have uh, people who are putting the brakes on him during the first term, like, you know, Jared Kushner, for example. He's not going to have anyone like that around. So it, it'll be Trump unbound if he gets back in. With McConnell as his archenemy. I don't think if Trump gets in, McConnell will last three minutes. Uh, you know, Trump wants him out. They're putting up uh, Rick Scott to run against McConnell. Uh, fortunately, Trump, what Trump doesn't understand is that no one likes Rick Scott. He's an but, idiot. Well, you know, easy to say he's an idiot, but he was elected governor twice and senator once and started from really nowhere and wound up as, as I don't know if he's a billionaire, but he's a multimillionaire many times over. Committing Medicare so, fraud. Yes, he was very successful, and in fact, he was the most successful of anybody who's ever tried to treat Medicare. And that takes some brains. I don't <laughs> does know it? I mean, it's an idiot. I, yeah. Does it? I always think that's... He got away with it. He got away with stealing <laughs> tens of millions of dollars from the U.S. government. But he had to pay it back. Did he do that? He had to pay back like a billion. Why is it like the highest... No, he didn't have to pay back anything. The, the company uh, did. The company did, but he had already left the company with a gigantic severance package. Right. No, he, he can't, I mean, you can say a lot of things about Rick Scott, and, and I encourage you to, but idiot is probably not the best descriptor. Do you think... It's a, I think people can succeed... If they're stupid and willing to take shortcuts, if you're immoral, 
you can you can make your fortune if you have no scruples. That doesn't mean you're brilliant. Well, there's a, there's a lot of space between idiot and brilliant. And he certainly is immoral, that's, that's for sure, and, and shortcuts isn't the word for it. Uh, but he, you know, he, he plots things out. He's, been, he's just been very successful. Not he's, running the Republican Senate committee, hasn't right. that? Hasn't, I mean, that, that will have to be judged uh, November, you know, right the first Wednesday of November. But I don't think he's successful with that either, but we have to see. Okay. Let's talk about the yeshivas. You know, I'm very critical of organized religion, and I, it's important that I go after uh, my, my group when they misbehave. Are uh, you orthodox? Are you Hasidic? Uh, yes, I am. Well, you know, when you came to L.A. last time, I didn't see any of those dreadlocks or those funny dresses. Oh, they, it's, the, it's they're invisible now. We're, we're, we, we, we hypnotize you into not seeing it. I talked about the yeshivas raising ignorant kids. New studies are out that the yeshivas are taking money from New York State and not educating. Like billions of dollars, billions with a B. They're, take, they're taking illegally taking, uh, or I shouldn't say they're illegally taking, the New York State New York State is illegally giving them billions of dollars to raise morons yeah. who can't read or write, who can't, who can't live a life in, in, a, mo- in a modern society. They're, they're being taught how to live a life in Lithuania in 1600. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know I'm, I'm, I'm saying the truth. I'm not trying to yeah. be a comedian. Yeah. And so we talked about that last week. Talk to me about the Supreme Court ruling. You write about it over down with tyranny. They had a an LGBTQ group at a yeshiva that had been banned. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the well, kind of. It, 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 the New York court. Uh, first of all, we're not talking about Hasidics here. We're talking about Orthodox. So it's, modern, it's, modern it's Orthodox. Supposedly not as not as bad. Um, so they, the Yeshiva University in New York is run by the modern Orthodox, uh, factor, uh, faction. Anyway, uh, so they, they were taken to court by, a, um, a gay group at the school that they were being discriminated against. They weren't being treated like every other club. And the, uh, the New York court ruled in their favor. Yeshiva then appealed it to the, um, uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court told them to go pound sand. So now they are uh, trying to come up with another way to approach this. So they, what they've done is, a ban- uh, is gotten rid of all clubs. So in other words, rather than accept the gay club, they say no clubs until after they, uh, they, they've uh, appealed this again in New York State. Right. And they, these people have a lot of clout because... You know, you just have to convince a very, very few old rabbis to be on your side, and then they tell their congregations uh, or their movements who to vote for, and that's it. You don't have to convince all these people. There are 50,000 Hasidics, which all go back to Hasidics, and you just, you know, there's just a few rabbis to tell them who to vote for, and they vote that way. I mean, you know, I, I've looked at the block by block, election district by election district. Um, vote totals 
uh, from last year in 2016, it's, it's just shocking. I mean, you, you go, I mean, you know, Brooklyn was, was uh, definitely Biden territory. He won in the landslide. But you go into these Hasidic neighborhoods and you look at their election districts and you'll see like, you know, 400 votes for Trump, two votes for Biden. Right, right. Un, I mean, it's like unbelievable. Well, let's talk about Ohio. Did you watch any of the Youngston, Ohio rally? Not really, but I thought you were going to bring up Devo. I got all excited. Oh, they're from Ohio. They're from Akron, Ohio. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wrote about them uh, recently as, as part of my, uh, my memoir. Uh, you know, I'm trying to introduce the idea that, you know, nobody remembers anything the way everybody else does. And anyway, so, uh, so I had taken Devo to some, I thought I took Devo to some uh, really uh, a crazy sex club called Mr. B's Ballroom. And then they went home and wrote a song called Mr. B's Ballroom, which is on their third album. Wow. Uh, and, um, but another person who I thought was with us at the time said, no, you and I went, and then we went over to Devo's place and we told them about it. They were never in the club. So I wrote about this thing saying, you know, you, you, this is what happens, you know, and, and as years go on, you don't remember and people remember things different ways. And I'm not sure if my way is right or his way is right. And then this, then this morning I spoke with Mark Mothersbaugh, the, the guy in Devo who wrote the song, you know, great talent, who is one of the best, uh, uh, you know, soundtrack uh, composers in the country. And I spoke to Mark for a great length and he said, no, he said, you came over to my house you told me the, the story, and I wrote the song right after you told me the story. So he remembered it the way he remembered it. But he also told me everybody in the band remembers everything differently anyway. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and, and in that same story, I, I, I've been tell, I have all these pictures of me and Dolly Parton around my house. And, uh, and people always ask about it. How do you know Dolly Parton? And I tell the story about how I wrote a cover story about her for The Advocate. And, I, and I, there's a whole stick around it and I, I you know, go into it it's too long to talk about now but i did write about it but the thing is is when i went to post this thing i decided to go find the advocate so i would post a picture of me and dolly plus the, the cover story and sure enough i find it but it's not the advocate it's another magazine i've been telling this story for over 40 years <laughs> and i had it wrong great so. and we can read that over down with tyranny you can. Uh, yes. Before you go. Can I say one thing before I go? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Ohio, but go ahead. The, okay. So I got a, a letter, of an email a little while ago from uh, Facebook saying, we're throwing you off Facebook if you don't, uh, you know, respond to this immediately. Uh, we're closing your, 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 uh, your, your, um, your pages down. So I, so I go to Facebook to try to, to find someone to talk to. I wasted an hour trying to find someone to talk to. I finally find someone, and they say, well, you know, you have to pay a dollar uh, to, uh, to get our uh, feedback. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Why the hell don't these people get, like, the Congress keeps saying they're going to break them up. I don't see anything happening. They're just saying that to make everybody happy, and they don't do anything. What, what are, is it because of the content you're saying? Things? I don't know. They, 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 yes, it's about content, but they don't tell me which blog it is. And it sounds, it sounded fishy. They said it was, 
you know, I posted something that's owned by Universal Publishing in Portland, Maine. And I don't think there is such a thing. And I, and, and they're not telling me what they're angry about it, what, what they're, what, you know, what they took down. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm usually very careful about not uh, posting anything unless it's public stuff like on, on YouTube or something. Right. So I don't know what they're crying about. Anyway, the point, though, that I'm making is that you can't get any any kind of help from uh, Facebook. They're, they're just so useless. Right. Before you go, Ohio, Trump is all in on Ohio. And I read a piece, I think it was in the Washington Post, that he's done pretty well with his endorsements. But is he picking winners? But remember, he mostly endorses people that don't have competition. You know, he, he you know, in Ohio, he, uh, he endorsed J.D. Vance and he pulled J.D. Vance wouldn't have won without Trump. So that one Trump did fine. But generally speaking, he, most of his when they come up with these numbers, 97 percent uh, of his uh, endorsees win. Most of them by far are, are uh, incumbents who are going to win anyway. They don't need his endorsement. So, so be careful when you hear them saying that kind of thing. But, yes, he did very well in Ohio and in Pennsylvania, where his candidates probably wouldn't have won without his endorsement, Arizona as well. But now the Republicans are stuck in a sticky situation where those candidates who are good for the um, the primaries are not good general election candidates, and they haven't been able to pivot to a, to an audience where those, those are swing states with, with swing, you know, you, you can't win those states just Republicans. You can only win those states if you get independents, and, and moderate Republicans and conservative Democrats have to put together a coalition, and none of those candidates have has been able to do that. Right. So, you know, we, so we'll see if his endorsement has been a kiss of death, which I think it, it is a kiss of death for the Republican Party, which is why I think the Democrats are going to win the Senate. They're going to win the Senate, but... That's what I think, although pr probably not Ohio, which is too red of a state. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, uh, I haven't given up on it. I'm, I'm not... I'm not a big fan of the Democrat who's running. He's a conservative Democrat and, and also a kind of a cowardly guy. So I don't think he'd make a good senator. He'd certainly make a better senator than, um, than J.D. Vance. Right. But it's not the kind of uh, candidate that I would ever ask people to pony up money for. Great. Howie Klein, founder, treasurer, Blue America PAC. Read him every day over at Down With Tyranny. Thank you. Sorry for the screw-up today we're having... Well, I didn't notice the screw up, but okay. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I don't want to get into it. Thank you, Howie. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye. Howie Klein. Some technical problems, but you carry on. That's what that's what you do. You carry on. Um, is David Cobb here? Howdy. Hi. How are you? I'm mighty fine. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. A couple of in the midst in the midst in the midst of all your technical difficulties. Could you hear Howie, or was it ridiculous? I could. I sure could. Okay. Uh, I was uh, I was interested to hear about his Devo story. Ever since you told me uh, the the backstory that we kind of share around uh, mu the music scene and especially the punk scene, I I always listen to hear if there's going to be any. Uh, uh, any reference like that. And I'll yeah. tell you this, I'm going to jump right in and say, Feldo, I did see, uh, I didn't watch the whole, uh, you know, 
the entire Mein Kampf of the Youngstown rally, but uh, I've seen excerpts of it. And I hope we do talk about that uh, because the open embrace of QAnon uh, and the the language uh, that that I'm hearing. I mean, this is this is really frightening stuff. Uh, yeah. What we're seeing. Uh, what great. The, let's the, let's get right into it. The the what I find fascinating as we're on the road to destruction is somebody like you. I should introduce you. You ran for president in the Green Party ticket, and you also managed Ralph Nader's presidential campaign when he was running on the Green Party ticket. And you say that you don't fetishize politics, that there are other elections, elections. I, I, I live and breathe politics, but I think electoral politics is just one way to do politics. And there has been something very silly going on. You watch the Youngstown, Ohio rally. I said earlier in the show that if somebody wrote a script and had a character named Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said what she, let me play you what she said. Uh, you, you, you would get thrown out of Hollywood writing a character who says something like this. But we know that cheap gas, it won't last, will it? No. You want to know why? Democrats all worship the climate just like AOC. But let me tell you something. We worship God. We worship God. So if you wrote that in a script, the, the producer would, or the director would say, get the F out of here. No, that that's it, 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 I, thank you for saying that because I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll see that line in the script and I'll raise you the entire friggin character because if a script writer uh, sent to to central casting uh, we want this person to be in Congress and they have to say things like this because that one line like. Feldo, we could spend the rest of our time together cherry-picking completely asinine, insane, idiotic comments that both she uh, and, a, and a host of them have made, right? But what it would be almost impossible to imagine a decade ago is somebody like that actually getting elected to the United States Congress. Yeah. And let's be clear, part of that is because the Republican Party establishment would never have allowed it. And this is part of what has happened is the Fox Newsification and the Trumpification and the, the the emerging fascism that that has been unleashed has like literally it's like a Frankenstein monster that's now turned on the creator, right? Like like you know that the actual sane people in the Republican Party know that QAnon uh, is is dangerous and, and is crazy. But now Trump is literally endorsing it. He has been with a very subtle nudge and a wink, but this is now an open embrace, right? Like like what we're seeing now in the Republican Party. Uh, and in what way JD has he embraced what what way has he embraced QAnon? Listen, uh, the 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 references with the thumbs up uh, the kind of language that he's using. The, oh, uh, those signs are QAnon signs when he was playing the music and talking about 
that crazy weird music and the and the, and the finger up uh where we go one we go all this really is, like do a little bit of research it's, i i and i'm not trying to be a jerk here uh feldo but like it, it's it's reminding me when i first tried to tell some other folks about the boogaloo boys and the hawaiian shirts that they wear and how dangerous it, that is and they were like laughing at me and I'm, i was like look i track this I used to be on a, a website called Stormfront. That got shut down. But the point is, I actually spent some time trying to, uh, to to track what it is that this emerging right uh, is up to. And when you do that level of tracking, when you're watching it, it is very clear from 8chan to 4chan. This is like they call it the day of the rope, right? They, like they they have the they they worship the Turner Diaries, like. If you really want to get frightened, go to an 8chan site uh, and just start looking. And the reason is because that can't be tracked, right? Uh, and so you can actually see, and fascists are organizing one another, right? The, 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 uh, the, and they are reaching out to disgruntled, lost folks, you know, from poverty or working class backgrounds who recognize that the, the and, and they're correct the world is changing and shifting and there's there's not really going to be a place for them and this is the problem feldo the neoliberals don't understand it and the neoliberals don't have a place for those folks so they are ripe and fertile for the picking of the fascists this is why i'm saying that those of us who do understand that's happening, uh, that we've got to do everything in our power to organize mass movements that can prove that we can meet people's needs, concrete material needs, uh, and that the us and them is not us good white folk versus them, the black and brown or, or Jewish or, or however the them is, but really it is a, a pyramid. And those at the very top uh, are actually uh, getting us to fight against one another, right? Like, that's the real work that needs to happen. So talk me through the transformation. When you have, I, there's some people on the internet who I don't pay attention to. Rodrigo, who comes on at the end of the show, has been teaching me about them. They, they're soft entry points into fascism because they present themselves as leftists the same way Hitler did, you know. They call, they call it red pilling. Right, so explain that to me. And how do I get in on this? Because I hear well, it's very uh, lucrative. <laughs> like, I mean, I, uh, sometime maybe I, uh, I'll let me know when Rodrigo comes on maybe and y'all are going to specifically talk about that and I'll try to arrange my so schedule. What is so red pill what does red pilling mean? So red pilling me, it, it, it's a reference it's to from the, the Matrix, Matrix right? Right. And when, when you when you red pill, uh, what you're doing is feeding somebody the truth, but in a palatable sort of way. And for them, they think that fascism is the truth, but they need to feed it to us in a palatable way uh, uh, to, to begin the consciousness and the realization of the truth as they see it. Right. So uh, the, the point that I'm making or, or that's what red pilling means. Right. And uh, I'd love to hear from Rodrigo. And 
Somebody says, oh, Rodrigo is actually here. Is there a way to- well, He'll come on later. We're good. Okay. okay. So, all right. So, so what, I'm, what I'm saying is that there is a, uh, um, a, 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 a process that folks are going through. And what really frightens me, Feldo, that um, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, well, our side is going to win. We'll just outlive these fascists. Mm-hmm. And that's not, actually not true, because if you go and talk to, a, there's a lot of disaffected young people who are being won over uh, to the fascist ideology, and their level of conviction is uh, uh, is quite strong. And because they're young, they actually don't have. Once they once they embrace it, they don't typically have the kind of self regulation, right? Like. People of our generation, right, and uh, like grew up where even if you were an explicit racist or, you know, a fascist, you'd keep your mouth shut because you were you knew that that it was a shameful thing to the rest of society. Right. Even if you weren't ashamed of it. Right. But now it's like cockroaches who are no longer afraid of the light. Right. Uh, Like they they embrace it honestly uh, and the uh, the uh, and with vigor. And if you take a look at the red pilling that's going on, they literally will say things like they're 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 educating each other about how forthcoming they can be. They call it uh, full fash or going full fascism. You can't go full fash, right? Uh, so they uh, know they know what they're doing. They know they're they fascists, know. and they what they think Mussolini and Franco and Hitler. They're, they like these guys. Most of them do. They think that they uh, like uh, you know, the, the it, and again, like this is look, I'm going to where's be, an example. Is Steve it fucking Bannon is a fascist. Right. Right. Like and, and he has an ideological understanding and he is playing a, uh, a, a game uh, in terms of how the uh, how to characterize and uh, and. Uh, tr- play and appeal to the to the masses and bringing them along. Right? It is an incredible, incredible, deceitful, uh, but incredibly effective uh, maneuvering. Where has fascism worked? Somebody in the chat room wrote Pinochet, the Chicago school killing Allende. If you're a fascist who believes in f- fusing the military with finance. You would look towards Pinochet as a success story, even though it wasn't a success story, but it was for the, the richest one percent. Where do you look? You can't point to Hitler and say that worked, even if you agreed with Hitler. The the destruction. Who Listen, who, who do they use as the? What they say is that the survival of not of of the nation state. They lift up the ideology. They one of the things that that I uh, want to remind you, and we we uh, I've made this. Uh, Do me a favor. Before. Don't read the okay. chat room. I can tell okay. when you're reading the chat room. Oh, you're right. I was. Okay. I was. Uh, well, it's interesting. They, they've got. I know, but it's myopic because they're uh, they're going to take you off. I'll yeah. I'll I'll keep an eye on it. 
All right, okay. take a look at it because look, I, I, I like I like your fans. I, I, like I know, the but they, but they're distract. I can tell when they're distracting you. They okay. were distracting me. You okay. were right. You caught me. But look, uh, don't confuse logic with the ideology of fascism. So your very question, uh, I, like we could talk about it, but well, it Steve doesn't Bannon's mean, using logic. Listen. What Bannon, Bannon will use logic when he needs to, right? But he's not relying exclusively on logic. That's my point. Uh, the 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 uh, like when you say, well, who do they point to? Like because fascism has always uh, uh, you know ended badly, right? Doesn't matter. What they say is, and and again, not all of them are going to be a full embrace of fascism. What they'll say is. Our nation are like, look at how Marjorie Taylor Greene is embracing Christian nationalism uh, without actually talking about nationalism. Right. So there are gradations to what they're doing. But I'm saying if you take a step back from the fabric and look at uh, what the patterns that we're actually seeing, what 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 is what is in my uh, assessment, what we're seeing is a growing mass movement of people uh, that believe in the characteristics of fascism, which is the hypernationalism, uh, the uh, the fusion of the corporate state uh, with the military, the us versus them. Remember that fascism at its core is always an ethno national uh, ethno nationalism. In this country, it's white supremacy. But Bolsonaro is Brazilian. Modi is Indian. Like I can go in South Africa, like like there are fascists emerging all across but the world. But they still persecute black people in in Brazil and in Brazil they do. But but like again, fascism will rise in multiple places, and they what they will do is always otherize, right? Uh, and you know, look, you're Jewish, so what you understand is Jews are always always part of the othering, right? Uh, and so that's why anti-Semitism historically and traditionally is part of, uh, you know, the, the, the target of fascist hate. Uh, but, uh, but again, what I think is important to understand is that fascism is a social, political, economic system. And in order to, to implement it, it ultimately uh, will require a, a, a mass base to be able to succeed. Otherwise, you, you might have a dictator or a totalitarian. But don't you state. need a dictator? It seems to me that be, the internet you can scoop up everybody, but in terms of cohesion, you do need somebody like a Donald Trump. There's almost all, yes, there there is, and, and look, but the thing is. It doesn't have to. It'll be at like a Donald Trump, because I'll tell you, DeSantis is going to fit the bill just perfectly. Right. Uh, Josh Hawley could step right in. I mean, he's not as charismatic. But yes, th th there are typically authoritarian rulers. Uh, but what I'm saying is, and like if you have just an authoritarian ruler without the mass base, then you just have a dictatorship. Right. Right. Fascism requires a mass movement of people who basically agree with that ideology. So uh, let me ask you. So there's some questions from the chat that are pretty brilliant. So let me pour through them. Uh, Joe 
I believe in Scranton, says, with the decline of Marxist critique of capitalism, ethno-religious explanations are rising. Well, Joe, I agree with you. It's part of the reason. And I see Dr. Fraud is with us. Howdy, Dr. Fraud. I'll, uh, I, I know Feldo will give you a proper introduction in a couple of minutes, but I just want to acknowledge that I see you here. And because you came at a good time, because Joe uh, just said, with the decline of Marxist critique of capitalism, ethno-religious explanations are rising. I think Joe is 100% correct, because what a Marxist critique of capitalism, if you understand it, would it remember Marx was simply saying, I'm trying to describe capitalism. How to solve it is, you know, uh, like there are different ways. Like he did not prescribe this is the path forward. A lot of what, what are called orthodox Marxists, I think, are just wrong. Uh, what Marx gives us is dialectic materialism, a lens by which to see the world. Uh, but and because there has been a decline in understanding about at its core what capitalism is, uh, it, it 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 like that lens helps me understand the world. Just like having a lens around heteropatriarchy, settler colonialism. Like once you see the power over extractive nature of social, political, economic systems, then everything I see actually makes sense. But I actually will say this. If you don't understand white supremacy, then uh, most of American history will confuse you because we're taught a certain story, right? But it's actually not true. But it's enough true that it becomes confusing and you don't know what to do, which is why Joe's point about ethno-religious explanations of how the world orients, actually, because they have an answer for you. Right. Just like fascists have an answer for you. Rush Limbaugh had an answer for you. Marxists right. have an answer for you. But that answer, as Joe points out, is not being heard. It can't be heard. Lynn writes, and I agree with her, she says that she's scared for Lula and what Bolsonaro's militia will do after Lula wins in, on October 2nd. Lula's leading in the polls. Yep. Bolsonaro is already calling it election fraud, that you can't trust the polls. Uh, they do have a Supreme Court that sort of helped Lula get out, but uh, might, might, might makes right in the end, right? Well, no, it doesn't. Let, let's just be clear uh, about that. You're quoting Thrasymachus uh, uh, from uh, Plato's Republic. And uh, like this idea that might makes right is, it was actually destroyed uh, in the Platonic dialogue. Really? Right? So just, I didn't know yes. that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> What's his name? Uh, Thrasymachus is the character in Plato's Republic who makes the claim that uh, uh, might makes right. Um, and uh, uh, Socrates, but Plato is writing uh, Socrates' character, who is Socrates was was Plato's teacher, basically destroys the argument and says, "Look, might might be able to assert itself over others, but virtue is virtue, and 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 correctness and principles actually, you know, are can like just because you suppress truth doesn't make truth not true anymore." Right. So also, I really think we have to respect that Marxism is making a comeback as the empire falls oh. and that for the first time in 50 years, Marxism is out as part of the discourse, 
which had been repressed for about, well, since the 1950s. So there are changes in awareness. So people are more aware now, not fully aware. It's not part of our press or educational system, but more aware than they were for the last 50 years. So I'm, again, I have a hard out in five minutes, and I'm sorry that I do, but I just dropped into the uh, into the chat. I just got an announcement. I'm on the left forum uh, email list, and I hope others are as well. But uh, Professor Richard Wolf is uh, offering a, a short four-week seminar called Understanding Socialism. I just dropped it into the chat. I'm going to beg you... Uh, uh, Feldo, please circulate that. You've got you've got a following. If you think that what you hear from Dr. Fraud and I sort of, you know, on the fly as we try to do some of this. Uh, uh, oh, shoot. I, did I, uh, somebody just told me I shared the wrong link. I'm going to find the right link uh, and, and share it. But but the, the, the thing is uh, that uh, Understanding Socialism with Richard Wolf starts October 3rd. It's uh, about uh, two hours four-week session on understanding socialism. I really genuinely believe that this, like we're in a moment, right? Fascism is rising because of the conjuncture that we're in. We're in interstitial space. Whether I like it or not, whether you, Feldo, like it or not, or whether Bannon likes it or not, the world is being restructured because of the political economy. Right. It's 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 changing from an old industrial base to a new digital age. And, you know, you don't need labor the way you used to that. Like like this is part of what what is happening. So it can either break just like all conjunctures can break a number of ways, but it's not going to continue the way it was. Fascism might be one of the answers. Socialism might be one of the answers. We're in a battle to try to educate as many people as we can about what socialism can do for them, how socialism is the path forward for genuine democracy, for ecological sustainability and and liberty. Right. And it's not I'm not saying like, you know, me, I will fight for reforms that will make people's lives better, but I'm not merely a reformist. I am a revolutionary. I believe that we can win a new society. And uh, as I often say, I'm not fighting to save this dying system. I'm fighting to create an entirely new system. Uh, and I, I do think that, uh, uh, like, Richard Wolf is probably the most respected Marxist. So how do we sign up for it? How do you do this? How do we sign up? Dr. Fraud, do you, because I thought I dropped the link and I thought it was there uh, on the left forum. Do you have that? Okay. I don't have it in my mind. They can go on Left Forum 2022 and find it in a, in a nanosecond. So, left so Forum. Okay. Left Forum uh, 2022, uh, Richard Wolf. I know that he's doing it uh, on uh, October 3rd is when it starts. It's a four-week seminar. I got two minutes left. So what I also want to do is, is tease this. I'm not an electoral fetishist, but I do engage in elections. I am in the early stages of, of get, trying to bring together a group of folks to imagine a statewide ballot initiative to change our voting system in California to proportional representation. Not yes. just ranked choice voting, but proportional representation, right? It, it would, it, it is the, the, in terms of elections, it's probably the most non-reformist of the reforms that you can, you can make. Uh, and just like it took us about four or five years for public banking. 
Feldo, I want the permission from you to bring somebody on. Maybe not next week, but I want to use your show to start. I want you to be off Broadway. I want to bring on some people for proportional representation to start playing with it to get the talking points down because you're a friendly media source. Because when we go to unfriendly media territory, I want their, I want them to be tight. Okay. Excellent. Fair enough. Excellent. David Cobb, well, how do people Wolf wrote a book, Understanding Socialism, which is a very clear, easy book to read. Great. Thank- I got to go, y'all. Great to see Bye. you. Uh, Thank you, David you Cobb. Week. We'll see you next week. Uh, are we still there? I am. Good. Okay. Uh, we're having technical problems as usual. Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She is the host of It's Not Just In Your Head. It is a podcast. Two mental health professionals explore how capitalist economic system impacts our emotional lives from precarious housing and employment to unaffordable health care to endless debt. It's not just in your head. I love that. And who do you host that with? I host it with Liam Tate and Ekoi Hero. Right. The three of us do that together. It, it's it's so basic and we forget we forget to breathe, we forget to drink water, and we forget that our anxiety, our depression is caused from precarious housing, precarious employment, unaffordable health care, endless debt. And precarious relationships and the fact that our empire is crumbling and the old values work hard and you can get ahead are dead. I want to talk to you about the queen in a second, but I at the top of this show, I talked about this story that the New York Times put out about Russian trolls creating division within the Women's March. In 2017, four million women showed up around the country to protest Donald Trump. They called it pussy power. There were basically four women who organized it, one of whom was Linda Sarsour, a Palestinian-American, devout Muslim. She wears the hijab. And there quickly became division among the ranks within a month. Linda Sarsour was no longer a part of the movement. It turns out, according to the New York Times, that Russian troll farms purposely divided the women's movement on behalf of Trump. They found a fissure that exists between Jewish women who are part of the progressive movement and Palestinians who are also part of the progressive movement, and then women who think that Israel is an apartheid state. And suddenly it no longer was a movement about women. It was an issue about Israel. And a lot of Jewish women were upset. And Linda Sarsour took the brunt of it. She was Bernie's favorite or one of Bernie Sanders' favorites. In the past five years, she's lost all her speaking gigs. She's persona non grata. She's a victim of uh, trolls. And it, according to the New York Times, this is the work of Putin. Now, we've discounted 
most of the people who come on this show tell me that Russiagate, they poo-poo Russiagate. They say Vladimir Putin had very little effect on, on Hillary losing. How much credence do you give this story in the New York Times that that the Fisher that I give it credence. I give it credence because I know that the FBI and CIA basically exacted, tore out class from the women's movement with CIA agents like Gloria Steinem. Right. And as a feminist leader of the time, we were all so naive. We didn't. We looked at wow, Ms. Magazine, no ads. We didn't think, oh, who's paying? Right. You know, and um, we were we were invaded by the CIA and the FBI in the great Wurlitzer operation of those two. And the black movement that had been civil rights became black power against whitey. And that way they tore class from the agenda. And of course, they can use the racial, sexual, cultural, ethnic divides and we have to be aware of that. And so let's refresh down. everybody's memory. Let's refresh everybody's memory. Gloria Steinem published Ms. Magazine. You were you're one of the founding mothers of women's liberation. Gloria Steinem was a CIA paid agent. Absolutely. And she openly if you Google Gloria Steinem CIA, she's very proud of this. Well, it's all out there on the internet, not in the newspapers, but, but she it's said, all out but there. But she says she's, she has nothing to hide. She says, I was... No, she has nothing to hide. And people, it's not on television. You know, it's just on the internet, if you're curious. And in 1969, Ramparts Magazine had an expose that included Steinem, because her job then for the CIA was going to international student events, that had people from all over the world and spotting who was interested in socialist or communist regimes and reporting them to the FBI and the CIA. So that she was active since the early 60s. And we were so naive, we didn't look at where the money was coming from. And what she did was make the women's liberation a gender-only movement completely obscuring the fact that even something like abortion is very different if you can afford to go to, um, you know, Sweden and get an abortion or go to a well-paid abortionist in New York City, or if you can't. And she was, her basic shtick was, we're all in the same boat, even though, you know, as once when Steinem was talking, the woman from the West, welfare rights, the head of the welfare rights organization, I forget her name, but she was very powerful at the time, the National Welfare Rights Organization, Hillary was saying, not Hillary, same thing, but Gloria Steinem was saying, we're all in the same boat. She said, no, you're riding the boat. We're underneath in the slave quarters. We're right. not in the same boat. You're getting in the lifeboat. We can't afford the fare. No. Mm -hmm. But that was the dominant message. And it exacted class from the women's movement and made it much more of an academic and upper class and middle class women's, educated middle class women's movement and took out the working class women. 
how can I have like, yeah the 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 how can I have the Heidi Chronicles you know can you have it both a, a career and a family and you know, I have to make a choice between a career and a family where most women don't have a choice they have a family exactly. and they need a career and it's a a, a point of privilege to you know what should I do? So the division, let's go back to what happened in 2017. Linda Sarsour, who is no longer part of this organization, what should the women have done? Because I remember being, I, I shouldn't say this, but I remember there were some women holding up uh, flags of Israel at the march, and that was triggering for the masses. And and I remember saying, uh, I understand you need to wave a flag of Israel, but you're in America now, and we're tr trying to build a large coalition here, and this is going to push certain people away. Let's focus on women's issues. There's a time and a place to talk about Israel and right and, and Palestine. Well, I think the organizers should not have allowed ethnic flags or ethnic symbols because nothing divisive should come between women upset that a pussy grabbing rapist is going is running for president. Right. And our president. And I think that should be policy. I that those things can be talked about, they can be debated, but our Presence is a presence of women, not divided women against each other. We're selling so, Big Macs here. This is where this we. That's how I think the movement has to think. We're selling you a Big Mac. If you're in the mood for ribs, I love ribs, but I'm not selling Big Macs here. I'm selling the right for an abortion, the right exactly. to for the police to test the and rape for kits. Everyone for everyone, right? And right. that. You know, because those divisions existed in our racist and sexist society, they were and could be exploited. And the leadership has to be aware that that's coming and not allow it to happen because it's happened before. And we have to we, we can't let them exploit the divisions between us. So I don't think any kind of national or ethnic flag should have been allowed in the parade. We are women. You want to display a picture of your uterus, go for it. But not, you know, no divisive symbols. And, you know, in the naivete of the leaders, they didn't, they weren't aware of our history of right. being divided against each other. And so they let it happen. Yeah, I mean, it's the way religious freedom has been sold to Americans. Yeah. These are sweet people. They, they're just innocent. They just want to be identified by their who they believe in uh, for their God. Why can't you respect that? It's divisive, but it shouldn't be. But it shouldn't be. Well, it is. Grow it up. Because that's where we live. Right. Live with those tensions. That's why you want to have your flag because you're aware that there's divisions and tensions and you're pushing your side. That doesn't work here. So it gets down to, and I say this all the time, the, the Republicans march in lockstep because they want one thing, money and power, and to hurt people. Yes, and they want 
white supremacy and the re-elevation of white males above everyone else. Where are their fishers? Where where do Republicans... Well, the the white working class (laughs) never benefited all that much and ought to speak up. And and, um, they don't. There are class divisions within that movement. Those Patriot boys are working class guys. A lot of the people who join the army join because they can't find another job and they're unskilled. And those class, you know, Trump united the classes on white supremacy. And he had the thugs and the Christians and the Brahmins at the top who thought, okay, we don't respect these people, but let them do the dirty work. And there are now divisions that the Brahmins don't want the people come in and shit on the floor of the White House, you know, right. like the January 6th people. Right. So the divisions and also young Christians are leaving in droves because they're not up for this. But, you know, they had a coalition, the Brahmins and the brown shirts. Right. Now it's falling apart. Right. Because they went a little too far and offended the Brahmins. Right. We have to teach young people that when somebody says they believe in law and order, they mean they believe in muscle. They believe in thuggery. They don't believe in an objective law. They believe in wielding the, the forces of the law, the cops, against you lawlessly. Right. Which they... Uh, they do. So let's talk about the the funeral. Uh, the yeah. queen died, I believe, on the 8th. They finally put this poor woman to rest. Not poor. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, I have a soft spot. I know the I know the monarchy has to be abolished. I, I get that. Uh, they. It, it trains people how to behave, how to dress, and manners. And manners are a form of control. Like you don't scream at Prince Andrew and call him a sick old man during the funeral procession. Otherwise, the police are going to wrestle you to the ground. He didn't get arrested. They did. Yep. Well, they arrested one person just yeah. for screaming. He's disgusting. Right. I mean, when you watch the pageantry and everybody literally marching in lockstep and you think, well, that's kind of beautiful and fascistic at the same time, it's all control. It's everybody giving up their own identity for something bigger, Her Majesty, being selfless. It's all it's all priming the fascist pump. That's her job. And it's also worshiping a hierarchical, controlling, stagnant hierarchy, which is the opposite of work hard and you'll get a reward. It's getting people to feel that wealth in in and of itself is so noble so that these people who, who control $28 billion of wealth while the national health system is crumbling and could use that $28 billion, These people are to be adulated because they're so rich. Charles, who's quite a sketchy character, inherited 500 million from mommy. 
no inheritance tax on Charles. The other Brits have to pay uh, 40% starting at 330-something thousand, much less than Americans who now started 12 million, but whatever. And this is a sketchy, rotten bunch. (laughs) Raped children. And the queen gave him 2.7 million to help him out with his 16 million dollar payment to shut Virginia Weefra up so that his case never went to trial. Charles, who's King Charles III now, is something out of a Shakespeare play. I mean, he marries Lady Di as a breeder to get heirs while he's still carrying on with Camilla Parker Bowles. And the woman and Lady Di becomes anorexic and depressed and goes to a therapist and then speaks out about her oppression of having to pretend she's happy when her husband's fucking around with someone else and she was only brought on as a breeder. Then she's dead. Well, she leaves Charles and the pretense and she dies and nobody's ever found out who killed her. And she dies when she's going out with an Arab, heaven forbid, and the royalty is miffed, as well as her exposing the sickness of their lives. And uh, the her the man she was going out with, who was the Arab, who they disapproved of, even though his father, Dodi al-Fayed, his father owned Harrod's department store, which was the Royal Department Store, recommended as Britain's department store until he put out a reward to find out who killed his son with Lady Di. But nobody ever found out who killed them. It's so Shakespearean. So he's got some blood perhaps on his hands. Plus he treated that young woman disgustingly and everybody knows it. He just inherited 500 million and the family owns 28 billion. But they are adored and adulated because they're so rich. And Americans are even worse than the British. The British demonstrated and got arrested. The Americans are even worse. The worship of a hierarchy which nobody deserves. No one worked for this. They're a bunch of idiots often, you know, and lowlifes. But that worship of hierarchy and obedience, knowing the lines of dominance and submission and submitting willingly, that's what this represents. We fought a revolution over this stuff. They killed 70,000 Americans in the revolution. They killed more than 20 million Indians in India to keep them under control. And even a little country like Kenya, they killed a million and a half people. These are disgusting. And we are supposed to show reverence for this hierarchical system from which we freed ourselves in our revolution. It's bizarre. And it's an outrage. So, you know, watching the pageantry and the adulation of wealth because it is wealth. And it's, why should it be taxed? It's great attribute to our society is the wealth itself. So why bother? Just like Trump bragging, he never paid taxes. 
And instead of being held accountable by his followers who are playing, paying taxes, he's thought of as a hero because the accumulation of wealth itself is worthy of worship. We have to watch out for that, that hierarchy. The opposite of work hard and you will be rewarded. It's really quite bizarre. That was amazing. Uh, watching the curtsies, there it reminds me not to be rude, but of the you know the bowing and the curtsying reminds me of dogs. Dogs. <laughs> we 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 always had three dogs, and the dogs were. It was very important for them to know where they stood in the hierarchy, and they couldn't wait to show obedience, to, to roll over on their back and say, don't, I'm not an alpha, I'm a beta, don't hurt me, look, look, I'm submissive. And watching the curtsying and the bowing, it, it's, it's indoctrinating. It's reminding you that you're a dog, that we're That's all- That's right, that you- Bow to wealth and power, no matter how it's acquired and now and how undeserved its recipients are. Now, the flip side is. I like to think nobody wants to be the king of England, that nobody wants to be born into that family, that it's a it's not even a gilded cage. They, they just go. Th they just run through that family until more kids are born and then you're no longer a working royal and you're cast to the curb. And what they did to Margaret, you know, uh, there are only so many royal... But they get a huge allowance. Yeah, but what do you do with your life? I, I'm not... It's, a, it's, yeah. it's tragic what they do to this family. It's true. That's why Meghan Markle was suicidal and had to leave. And Harry went with her because he saw what his mother went through. And that's why Diana had to leave. Because it's a shadow existence. You can't do anything spontaneous. And it's you're like useless. Working, it's like working as goofy in a theme park. Like it's a Disney world and you have to dress up in these ridiculous costumes and, and <laughs> touch everybody and get pushed and photographed. I look at... I was watching some clips of the funeral today and all these prime ministers. And I'm thinking to get on a plane, to fly in. And like I got so many better things not to do than sit through that crap. I'd rather, you know, watch a, a movie, read a book than have to sit. It, it's stultifying. It can't, they must all be drunk. The whole yeah, also what they did was they suspended the strikes for this. They suspended the rail strike. They uh, they postponed. Well, they postponed it. The Labor Party gave tributes. Even Extinction Rebellion uh, canceled its planned festival of resistance for this. This is ridiculous. This obeisance to idle wealth is. I actually think they, I think Charles, I think the monarchy has to be abolished. I, yes. I, I, Nationalized. They could use the money. Yeah. And, and maybe hire, you know, keep them around in case we need to behead somebody. Use them as scapegoats. 
<laughs> make that Buckingham Palace a museum and charge people to go in it. Yeah, well, it is. But you know? I think I think Charles has earned every penny. He's had no life. He can't. You wake up every morning and, and you say, which hospital am I going to today? Which school am I going to go to today? And, and you know, reveal a plaque. There's it, no way to live your life. No, but that's what they're bred to do. And they're adulated for it. And that adulation has to stop. But do they so feel they have died at the Museum of Buckingham Palace, and they need to do something useful? Do you think they get off on the adulation, or they yes. see, they enjoy it? I think that reinforces for him the, the the lines of dominance and subordination that they are dominant, and people bow and curtsy in their honor that they are the cream of the crop. It's said that Charles was concerned as he became king that Meghan, who is beige, and Prince Harry not bring their kids in case they came out too dark. They didn't want any darkies there in the family. I, I heard Whoa. it was I, I, I heard it was Prince Philip. He was the one who supposedly Well he was a notable racist and sexist. Right. They called those gaffes right. when he made a disgusting racist and sexist remark. Right. These people have been bred to think they are better than other people, which is Truly deadly. Right. And they've done terrible damage in the world. You know, these people are revered for their imperial past where they murdered millions of people around the world to establish their dictatorship. They say Winston Churchill is the greatest Britain. And then you look at who he was, uh, the Boer War, I mean, the stuff that he... Uh, did early on, and so, uh, yeah. But yeah. Did you, did, but Music they are enjo- they are enjoyable. I mean, the fa- the the they do serve. I'm not, again, I think they should be abolished. But uh, the well, one of the things that should be buried with the queen, besides the monarchy, is the nuclear family. Absolutely. This idea- because that enforces the lines of dominance submission like and nothing else. We're the most dependent animals in the animal kingdom. You're a tiny little thing. And when people bring up their children, they don't say, look, you have to do this. I don't know what I'm doing, but, you know, maybe it's wrong, but I'm in charge. I have the responsibility. No, I am right. I told you. Right. You know, it's it's the author, as Althusser says in his brilliant essay on ideological state apparatuses. Who? It's Who? Louis Althusser, L-O-U-I-S, A-L-T-H-U-S-S-E-R. I think he's the greatest philosopher of France. And he was honored. He was the head of the École Normale Supérieure and, you know, lots of other things. But that they are the nuclear family, the authoritarian nuclear family, the authoritarian educational system and authoritarian religion that keep people policing themselves from the inside out. So you don't need the cops and the army. You know the lines of dominance and subordination, and you know you got to keep subordinate. Mm-hmm. And these kinds of displays of this funeral reinforce the lines of dominance and submission. You submit before money. These jokers have nothing else but money. 
That's all they have, 28 billion of people's money. And a time when Britons were told by their own government they will be losing a thousand pounds of their income over the next year. Well, their inflation is way high because they are supporting the United States in um, against Russia there. Right. It, it's bizarre. And yet they're in line crying. Right. And th- these are people believing they must obey the authority. Be a good girl. That means shut up and obey. And somebody will no. keep you safe. And somebody, and you won't get beaten to death. Right. We forget that until the 1600s, the late 1600s, birth control was killing the kids you didn't want. Okay? So people watched their brothers and sisters getting murdered, and they got the idea. Be careful. And babies and young people who survived had more mirror neurons in their brains, which allowed them to mirror the emotions of the people around them. Really? Yes. And so those are our ancestors, because if you're not really sensitive to other people's anger, you get killed. That's easy. Grimm's fairy tales aren't kidding. That's right. If you married and you were a stepmother and you didn't want their kids because you had yours, you sent them out to the forest. That's what they did. Contraception. Yes, that was contraception. I like the kids you didn't want. So we learned from it. But, you know, human beings have these, the way we're brought up with the authoritarian family and authoritarian education and authoritarian religion, you learn the lines of dominance and submission and that you better submit. I think they should have big celebrations of labor, of all the things, of that palace that workers built, of the lawns that they keep up, of the flowers that they grow, because it's always raining in England, you know? Well, you, you, know, you, you know that he lived at Clarence House up until his mom died. There were about 100 people employed. They got notes. While they're busy getting him ready for the funeral and to become king, they got notes that you're probably going to be unemployed in the next couple of weeks. They couldn't wait until today when the period of mourning ends. Um, Yeah, because what do they care? These are just the people who do the work to put out those royal puppets in their uniforms. You know, it's it's a pathetic show and Americans are participating without criticism. Well, Chris Hedges has a good article on the monarchy. I mean, they're not totally without criticism. I have a podcast on the monarchy because I was absolutely astounded. And Shakespeare, who was the illegitimate son of, um, I think, Elizabeth, who had, she was the virgin queen who had seven kids on a sly with a farmer. But um, he was one of those illegitimate kids, according to the research. And so he knew what was going on. And he wasn't kidding when he wrote those plays. That's what they're up to. And when Lady Diana, quote, died in the mysterious car accident and nobody ever found out who did it, I thought, oh, yeah, Shakespeare had something. She was a thorn in their side. Well, she was determined. I I don't know. I mean, she was determined to bring Charles down. 
Well, she was a thorn in their side. She had Susie Orbach was her therapist who wrote wonderful books on anorexia. And she realized that she was brought on as a breeder while he was busy with his longtime lover and that she was supposed to pretend they were in love and she was a princess and she was happy while she was miserable and rejected. And she couldn't stand it. She got sick. Right. And she exposed them, which was a wonderful thing to do. We, we have to change the subject because Professor Adnan Hussein is a royalist. Yes. And when we, yes. <laughs> if, if, if we don't refer to Princess Di as England's rose, first he cries and then he storms off. So I, we, I, we have to be respectful of people's, uh, well, th uh, this was gr amazing, simply amazing. It, it was like... Uh, wasabi, you cleared my sinuses talking about the royal <laughs> family this way. I'm glad. I, I am a sucker for, you know, the the stories about them, but they do have to go. There, there's, it, yeah, well, Shakespeare's stories are yeah. really exciting, yeah. too. Yeah. Same idea. Yeah. yeah. It's, not <laughs> it's not just in your head. A podcast about capitalism and mental health. Go listen to It's Not Just In Your Head. And it isn't. If you're anxious, yeah. it's not a chemical imbalance. Not only in your head, that's right. And also listen to Capitalism Hits Home, yes. which is my podcast by myself. We love you. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Love Fry. you, too. Thank and you. love your audience. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Joining us in Ontario, Kingston, Ontario, is Professor Adnan Hussein, host of Guerrilla History, beautiful T-shirt, I see there. And the Mudgeless podcast, I sent you uh, an article about chairs. Did you notice that in the Washington Post? About chairs? Yeah, I sent it. I was reading. Uh, kind of chairs. I, oh, okay. From the Washington Post. It was, I see. Yeah. In the magazine? Yeah. Uh, just because the Mudgeless. Petty, petty tyranny? Oh, oh, no. It's about actual chairs. Oh. And that it's a study of chairs and government. Mm. And I thought of you mm. because mudgeless, I believe, means sitting, right? Yeah, actually, uh, that's right. Um, it was the term, um, you know, mudgeless can even mean a seat, uh, sort of, but the general meaning is really a, uh, a sitting down. And it was the term for people sitting and gathering together for a session, a kind of uh, session at court to... Uh, you know, uh, listen to a great poet or a session that is a seating of scholars together to trade uh, views on, you know, the latest uh, uh, scientific or, you know, theological questions. So that's what it means. And it means a sitting. Um, and that's because uh, they didn't have desks and chairs in that way. Uh, they sat on a carpet, you know, on a divan, you know, with the Cushions and, and there's and, something yeah. egalitarian. Everybody's the same height when they're seated. Well, of course, there you know is always room for precedence. Who's closest to the most prominent yes. person and on their right, and how close you can be. But the idea is that, of course, it is meant to be a bit more of an open egalitarian space, and that there was an etiquette, uh, just as uh, uh, you know, all polite uh, circumstances, there are ways to comport yourself, but there was actually an 
a code of conduct and etiquette that in some of these disputations would be taking place where people are taking just different positions and having debate. And there's a whole uh, you know genre of uh, uh, literature that talked about what is the appropriate uh, etiquette um, and conduct in this situation, uh, which is you know don't make ad hominem attacks, don't raise your voice, wait until your you know opponent has completed their thought. And there's a whole code for how do you have um, civil discourse um, you know in that intellectual environment of the mudgeless. So we hope you know that. Uh, the podcast can channel some of that, those ethics of sponsoring good discussion, inquiry, and views among scholars. There are a couple of things I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about Speaker Pelosi's trip to Armenia and, okay. and her, is she siding with Armenia over uh, Azerbaijan and, and the origins of that conflict? I wanted to also ask you about the president of, uh, uh, of Iran, who was on 60 Minutes uh, Sunday night, talking about uh, restarting the, the nuclear deal and, and where we're at there. And, his, you know, he's a politician, so he wouldn't acknowledge the Holocaust. And I wanted to ask you what that was about, whether or not that was uh, playing to the playing to the voters and a really interesting interview with Bill Clinton on CNN over the weekend talking about Putin's invasion of Ukraine and how it had nothing to do with NATO expansion. And when you hear Let me start with Clinton, because Mm. it's received wisdom on this show that all we had to do was promise Putin that we, you know, we weren't going to push Ukraine to the West and, uh, you know, the EU. And and we just said the EU and NATO is off the table. Putin would have made nice with Ukraine. Clinton says otherwise. He said that uh, it would have happened sooner had there not been Eastern European countries and former parts of the Soviet Union joining NATO, that, that Putin would be emboldened to have gone in much earlier. Uh, is Does he deserve any credence and... Or, in your mind? Well, on most things, I probably disagree with the worldview of Bill Clinton. Um, so this probably is not that different. I mean, I think he's uh, seeing history through the lens of, you know, the American unipolar moment. And he was significantly involved in the expansion of NATO. And he ignored the warnings that came from his own, uh, you know, from uh, Ambassador who is now, uh, um, you know, has reversed his position, but at the time wrote a very famous memo saying "niet" means "niet." You know, uh, this expansion, contemplating expansion, and especially to Ukraine and Georgia, are red lines for Russia. They've made this very clear. This is already in 2008, after the security conference that took place in Bucharest, where it was announced that there would be an interest. In fact, actually announced that. 
uh, Ukraine and Georgia both would <clears throat> enter uh, uh, NATO, and it precipitated the crisis in Georgia that involved Russia invading uh, because the uh, president then, I'm forgetting his name, of of, uh, uh, of, of, of Georgia was really emboldened by uh, these sorts of security guarantees that he was going to be supported by NATO uh, to saber rattle and uh, didn't take seriously the threats and warnings and it precipitated this uh, crisis. Then that's, you know, again, a violation of international law by, you know, Russia to invade uh, Georgia. Uh, but I think, you know, there have been clear warnings and analysis that it would uh, provoke uh, responses. It didn't happen. Uh, before uh, these efforts were made. So it's completely a counterfactual in history uh, to say this would have happened earlier. There's absolutely no evidence to be able to draw such a conclusion. I mean, of course, there's evidence that Putin has expansionist fantasies that are part of Russian nationalism. But what people have to understand, and I'm no Russia expert, but I remember uh, the 90s uh, and the early 2000s. And there were uh, a lot of possibilities, it seemed, of extreme ultranationalists in Russia who make Putin seem like a much, a very moderate figure uh, who, um, you know, Vladimir Zhirinovsky is one. He just recently died. I mean, uh, there was a period in the late, uh, late 90s, mid late 90s, where he looked like um, he might be a real candidate uh, to take over and ride this uh, wave of extreme Russian nationalism uh, that was uh, far more dangerous even than the variety that we've seen uh, under Putin. And we have to be honest, Putin has moved further and further towards this kind of religio-ethno-nationalism as a result of developments that have taken place in Eastern Europe uh, and um you know, with expansion of NATO, with other geostrategic kinds of changes um, and the rebuilding of uh, the Russian economy because of the high price of oil. So if the United States was very concerned about uh, Putin, um, perhaps they shouldn't have been invading Iraq, which is what set off a spiral of high you know, oil prices for uh, the last uh, 20 years. I mean, there were periods where it dipped down and became really cheap and um, and so on. But a number of economies have been floated by these disastrous U.S. Uh, policies, the expansion of U.S. military engagement around the world, one of which was Canada, because the tar sands in Alberta are not, uh, you know, uh, profitable unless uh, the barrel of oil price for a barrel of oil is really very high. I can't right. remember exactly the, you know, the, the line, but it's like 70, 80, 90 dollars. It has to go above that for it then to become profitable. And um, so I, I think, you know, I think um, there are a lot of criticisms we could make of Putin. But in the 90s, he was seen as the safe choice. He was seen as the Boris Yeltsin who wasn't going to be drunk and embarrassing himself and un totally unreliable. He um, has metamorphosed in um, U.S. Uh, um, geostrategic uh, thinking into the boogeyman, but that is a long, slow process that has taken place. And there are markers along the way for where he has taken positions against 
U.S. steps and moves in expanding NATO and so forth. So um, I think that Syria is another issue. Uh, uh, the Syrian regime uh, under Bashar al-Assad is a close ally of, of Russia. It's the second warm water port, um, you know, after the Crimean port in uh, the Black Sea uh, that Russia has. And so it was very vital strategically and militarily for them to maintain a friendly government in Syria. And so they have been really pressed um, by uh, U.S. attempts to support uh, regime change in Syria. And uh, in fact, actually, that should have been a, a something of a warning because um, rather boldly, uh, they got involved militarily with the no-flight zone and possible confrontation, fighting potentially with uh, Turkey, who is a you know NATO country, and had that you know spiraled out of control. Maybe some of these uh, agreements that are part of the military alliance uh, would have had to be invoked. It was really escalating the situation, and I think the reason why is because Russia saw its strategic interests being targeted at risk by U.S. policy in the Middle East. You know, they were against the Iraq war. They were against U.S. intervening to try and topple Assad. So they've been opposing U.S. involvement in uh, in the Middle East. And then, you know, further expansion of NATO, um, you know, involvement in Eastern Europe and Ukraine and Georgia. These were... Um, uh, provocations uh, that um, I think all along the way, Putin was trying to uh, uh, pursue his interests and also bring world attention to the situation after 2014 in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, but I don't think reason prevailed in trying to negotiate some sort of agreement. There were agreements, but to actually bring the parties together to enforce them for stability, that just hasn't been the U.S. priority. I'm sorry to say, I mean, that doesn't excuse what he's done. This was a terrible step. It's an illegal invasion. Um, you know, he's committing war crimes by, um, you know, uh, violating the sovereignty of another country. But to try and rewrite history as somehow this was inevitable, that's because that's the statement, is that this was inevitable there's a lot that had to happen to get to this position, it seems to me. A lot of intervening developments have to take place for the political climate in Russia to become so nationalistic um, uh, uh, that is the political climate. Russia, I mean, Putin may not be, um, uh, you know, uh, an ultra Democrat, but I think he is uh, responsive to public sentiment politically, and he has to uh, deal with the fact that since 2014, uh, further right parties, uh, Russian nationalist parties, uh, have been decrying his policy um, of, you know, why didn't you, you know, annex, uh, you know, the Donbass region? Why haven't you gotten involved more directly with troops? Uh, so people think that it's Putin um you know, just making, uh, you know, these goals and ambitions for his unique and particular vision. Yes, we've talked about his historical identification with the maximalist geographical and territorial positions of Peter the Great and rooting 
you know, legitimacy of Russian involvement in Ukraine back into the ninth and 10th century. This is all this kind of twisted use of history to justify contemporary positions. But he has not come across, I think, in the speeches that I've read and so on as fomenting aggressive expansionism since the beginning. I mean, this has been something that has developed through frustration with American policy and in reaction response to it over the years. Great. Armenia, Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi visited Armenia. Armenia is buttressed up against Turkey on the Western Front uh, and on its Eastern Front, Azerbaijan to the north of Armenia is Georgia. And then below it is Iran and Iraq. Armenia is a Christian nation, mostly? Yes, it's one of the most ancient Christian polities, you know, like of an independent Christian power in history. You've got uh, basically like Ethiopia and Armenia are two of the oldest Christian kingdoms in history. Their democracy, Nancy Pelosi went there to speak out against the, the border conflicts. I guess there was a... Uh, two years ago, there was a four-week four war between Azerbaijan. I would, as I as I understand, there are Arme there are Armenians living in Azerbaijan, correct? And they, want yeah. Well, what there's this region, the Nagorno-Karabakh region, right. and like so many of these. Um, uh, borders being drawn and the birth of new nations out of empire. You have these stranded populations mm -hmm. uh, in these just, you know, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the places in, 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 uh, in, in Georgia that were at issue, you know, Transnistria and, uh, uh, and so on. It's a very similar kind of situation here now, not involving Russian ethnic and linguistic populations, but uh, Armenian populations that were in this region that was part of um, the state, the Soviet uh, Republic of uh, Azerbaijan, when it became an independent country, then you have a small ethnic minority uh, whose status and disposition with this new nationalism uh, that changes completely their political environment and, and so on, were very concerned about um, uh, their neighboring Armenia was very concerned uh, about their status. They, uh, Armenians in the region, declared independence, uh, a republic of the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. This is like 20 years republic. ago, right? Yeah, this is in like the early mid-90s. So yeah. this is what happened as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union. All of these issues and problems begin to arise in pressing sorts of ways of ethnic and national conflict. So uh, Armenia supported this breakaway sort of republic from Azerbaijan. It started a war uh, between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, disputed uh, lots of casualties and death over periods of intense conflict, and then it would sort of simmer down into some kind of tense, um, you know, status quo. Um, and I think what's happened is, is that as a result of the recent war, uh, I believe Azerbaijan retook these territories, 
it caused, I'm sure, I think, uh, I mean, I haven't followed all the news reports, but refugees into Armenia. Uh, and I think subsequently, the real problem here is that um, uh, Armenia, uh, the Azerbaijanis have pressed further and made attacks upon Armenia um, as well, further into like actual territory, you know, the territorial uh, 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 space across the border. And again, this is a case where this is a tense environment situation that normally relations between these two powers, as they had been in the past, would often be diplomatically brokered by Russia um, that would intervene or at least bring the parties together or try and put a lid on how intense and make sure that certain red lines aren't crossed and so on. And I think with the war in Ukraine, I'm not sure there is the attention and the troops and all of that. And maybe that was seized by Azerbaijan as an opportunity to, you know, finally take back territory that was technically originally part of Azerbaijan, but was a majority uh, ethnic Armenian uh, territory. Great. And one of the things that we talked about at the top of the show is, and I had forgotten that Biden and America, I finally called... Uh, the, the slaughter of 1.5 million Armenians genocide. That mm, yeah, that has yeah. taken decades for the American government to identify it as genocide. That's right. Yeah. Why? Why the holdup? Uh, well, uh, one reason is because Turkey is. Uh, important country and a NATO ally and um, was really important during the Cold War uh, in, you know, ringing uh, the Soviet Union and uh, making sure that it didn't have unfettered uh, access into the Mediterranean and so on. So, you know, Turkey's position there with the, you know, between the Black Sea and the Sea of Marmara, which empties out into the Mediterranean, was uh, very significant and important um, uh, so I think that is probably uh, one of the main reasons. And I think as Turkey has pursued a more independent policy, somewhat not quite non-alignment, but of playing as many sides as possible and attempting to establish itself as a regional hegemon and regional power uh, capable of intervening in places like Libya, where they did try and intervene in Syria, pursuing their own interests. They have pushed a kind of a five mile, a 10, 15 kilometer stretch into Syria as a zone that they are uh, controlling, for example. Um, that has kind of taken it out of the uh, orbit of U.S. policy, uh, I think, of and, and um, you know, the United States, um, like uh, uh, some other European uh, countries in Canada, has a very large Armenian diaspora. Right. And in fact, actually, there are far more people of Armenian, you know, descent in the Middle East, uh, used to be in Turkey. OK, like a lot of Turkey used to be Armenian before. Uh, so politically, why, why is it so difficult for Turkey to acknowledge what happened? This this was a slaughter. Yeah. I think there were two slaughters, one right before World War One and then one 10 years before World War One. I. I don't have it. Yeah, there are a couple of periods in the late 19th and early 20th century where there were like forced migration, 
Uh, a lot of people died on this, you know, uh, forced migration and expropriation of their, right. you know, property and land. And then there were also, um, uh, you know, maybe it wasn't quite as organized as something like the Holocaust with the German efficiency in the technology and the railroad trains and the gas chambers and so on. But there were camps and there were, you know, kind of killings and purges of Armenians. I myself don't understand. I mean, there is an ultra-Turkish nationalism that operates here as well. Turkey feels like it is a survival uh, kind of state of the core of uh, the dismembered Ottoman Empire and that, you know, Western powers like, you know, uh, T.E. Lawrence and Lawrence of Arabia, you know, uh, fomented this uh, Arab revolt, uh, and that their empire was dismembered by Balkan countries deciding that they wanted to uh, have their independence and the Arab countries rising up in revolt and that Turkey fought against the British and the French in World War I and managed to keep themselves from being uh, conquered and subjected to colonialism. And so they have this kind of nationalist uh, kind of sense of their history, that they were this empire, this very important country, um, and that uh, they also, um, I think, um, uh, you know, in consolidating, this is why I, I really just despise nationalism, in consolidating what was and in, in reforming a Turkish identity and as a as part of the uh, nation state, the new nation state, the republic that emerges outside or uh, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, um, you have, again, similar kinds of problems of what do you do with these populations when you have now defined Turkey, Turkish nationalism, which is Turkish and Muslim, essentially, even though it's a secular state, uh, as the basis of identity, what do you do with the Greek-speaking populations that had been there for hundreds and thousands of years, even before the Turks were there? You have a transfer of populations with uh, Greece, where people who lived in Anatolia, Anatolian Greeks, were forced to go to uh, you know the Balkan Greece. Um, Several hundred thousand and several hundred thousand back the other way is one of the largest population transfers before the partition of India, uh, you know, and the creation of Pakistan, um, because they were sort of uh, uh, leftover populations that were now considered a problem, you know, for the state. Could you give them full citizenship? What are you going to do about the fact that? You know, they have a different religion, different language rights. And similarly with the Armenians is that there was a very large community. And we've seen similarly with the Kurds, why there has been Turkish, uh, you know, there's been an insurgency, you know, it's sort of waned now. Uh, but, you know, there was for so long an insurgency to establish Kurdish autonomy, Kurdish language rights, and even perhaps a Kurdish state in, you know, a Kurdistan in eastern eastern Turkey. You know, the, this Turkish nationalism, in order to preserve their sense of the state as functioning, it had all of these mixed populations that existed in the Ottoman Empire, different religions, different ethnicities. And now in the era of the nation state and Turkish nationalism, what do you do with them if the basis and the fabric of the state and citizenship is on the basis of being a Turkish Muslim? So I think that unleashes all kinds of terrible uh, forces 
that led to the Armenian genocide. And I, to this day, do not understand why Turkey doesn't say, hey, that happened under the end, the end of the Ottoman Empire. It was a war. These are terrible crimes. Uh, you know, reconciliate with Armenia. They're like a bordering country. You need to be able to trade and have normal relations with them. Uh, uh, they're a nearby country. And um, put it in the past and say, we are a Turkish Republic. We're going to run on democratic foundations. And, um, you know, we apologize for, for that. Unfortunately, uh, they can't get over that. I think it's very difficult to have those conversations because of this extreme Turkish nationalism. And, you know, there was a pathway towards this. There was a period where it looked like there was going to be much more reconciliation and dealing with the outcomes of, of the past when Turkey was undergoing the major reforms under Erdogan in his first term got rid of the death penalty, reforming the police, get the military out of civilian government, uh, you know, um, uh, reform the legal system. He started doing these things, recognizing Kurdish language rights. You know, he started doing those kinds of things all as part of this accession to Europe. Okay, the door was slammed on him. And so he turned towards a different kind of politics, and he has moved further and further right. And basically, his last election, he would not have won if uh, – I mean, there's a lot of problems with the last couple of elections. Um, but fundamentally, the way in which he managed to win is he basically made an alliance and took over the policies of the extreme Turkish right wing, the right wing ultranationalists, the Gray Wolves uh, Party, and has prosecuted war against the Kurdish. And likewise, that has made it much less possible to actually have an open and honest dialogue about the history of the nation and, you know, what crimes were committed in the forging of it with the end of the Ottoman Empire and the establishment of the Turkish Republic. So I don't see much hope for really reconciling at this point. Um, uh, you know, things have gone in a direction over the last, you know, seven, eight years or so that I, I think are um, less promising for right. something like that. Before you go, let's pivot from Armenian genocide denial to the new president of Iran, Ebrahim Raisi, who's on 60 mm -hmm. Minutes, doing what I've seen other presidents of Iran do, and that is deny the Holocaust. They're elected officials. That's a political move in Iran. Jews do. They have Jews who serve they in the do. Iranian parliament, correct? Oh, they do. Absolutely. I mean, there is a very large Jewish community there. I mean, Iraq and Iran historically have, you know, this is from, you know, the Babylonian captivity. You know, right. people would locate it that in that era. Uh, but so there are Central Asian Jews. There are, you know, Jews in, who, who in are living uh, Persia live very, you know, okay in Iran, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, of course, how are you going to feel if the country has an official religion and your rights of citizenship have to be somewhat contingent on, you know, a policy that uh, establishes what that relationship is going to be? Things called just... Israel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So well. <laughs> what, what are the politics behind the the Holocaust denial. Who is he playing to when he when he does well, that? Well, this is a funny one. You know, I hadn't heard this uh, latest. Uh, I can play it for you. Do you want you want me to play? Oh uh, well, let's take a look at it. I'd like to see exactly what he says. Okay, uh, 
Then again, it's an interpreter, so it just may be the yeah. Leslie Stahl's interpreter uh, messing with them. But uh, yeah, I, I uh, here he is. Do you believe the Holocaust happened? That six million Jews were slaughtered? Look, historical events should be investigated by researchers and historians. There are some signs that it happened. If so, they should allow it to be investigated and researched. So you're not sure. I'm getting that. You're not sure. Actually, uh, as who was the guy, as the former mayor of Tehran, Azminejad? Azminejad, yeah. I mean... This was more, this was actually more uh, measured in terms of, he, he's saying, oh, there's evidence that something happened, we should research it. It wasn't an adamant denial of the Holocaust that we have seen yeah. before. Um, so this is progress. Right, right. Um, well, you know, Iran, of course, uh, if you're thinking about the domestic politics, Iran, <clears throat> Iran's foreign policy, um, uh, has been structured around, uh, you know, anti-imperialism, resisting U.S. influence in the region against both the little Satan and the great Satan, right? So the great right. Satan was the United States. The little Satan, as Khomeini said, was uh, uh, Israel. And of course, they support uh, the Islamic resistance movements uh, in Lebanon and in and in um in Palestine. And so I think in certain circles, it's probably important for him to be seen as uh, not uh, uh, capitulating uh, on some level to uh, the way in which perhaps it's viewed that uh, discussion of the Holocaust is meant to justify for the West, the state of Israel, which of course has um you know, had con devastating consequences and the dispossession of Palestine. So perhaps they see it in that context. Um, but I don't think seriously they deny or don't believe that, you know, the Holocaust happened. What he's saying there is probably that he doesn't want to be drawn in. You know, he, I don't think he wants to be drawn in on, you know, he's saying uh, what I took him to be saying is essentially um, uh that's not a question for a politician, right? right? Like, that's not my position to say right. anything. Let the historians talk about it. If there's a consensus right. about it, let them have that. I don't want to be talking about this issue, essentially. There seems to but be. It would have been so much easier for him to say, of course, there's been the Holocaust, but that doesn't justify what's happening in Israel to the Palestinians, which he went on, I think, to do. I'm looking at an article that, right. you know, he was asked right. whether he supports Israel's right to exist. And he said, quote, you see, the people of Palestine are the reality. That is the right of the people of Palestine who are forced to leave their houses and motherland. The Americans are supporting this false regime there to take root and be established there. So I think that's kind of right. the main position is that he doesn't want to be seen as somehow uh, – being weak on supporting the Palestinians in this in this circumstance. Last question. Uh, uh, there is a we were told that there's a fight for power between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, Sunni versus Shia. Where do we find more of a democracy in Iran or in Saudi Arabia? Oh, no question in Iran. 
I mean, okay, constitutionally, you have to look and say, well, certain things as part of the Constitution are ruled out. And of course, there is this like head of state, essentially, that uh, has in control uh, some of the key foreign policy and military decision making um, and uh, and so on. But if you want to look on a basic sort of level, uh, it's not a monarchy uh, in the sense that there is a hereditary rulership. Uh, you know, there are elections, there are civic uh, organizations, there are municipal governments, there are state governments, there's the, the federal government. And these things are you know, contested. So, so it, um, it, it, it feels like Israel and America are moving, Israel's moving towards Saudi Arabia. And there are similar investments. Mm -hmm. uh, the antipathy between Iran and Netanyahu is the Palestinians, is... What, 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 why are they not allies? I know with the Shah, they were, the Shah and Israel got along. Uh, what, what is it that, what are they? Why don't they get along? I mean, obviously they have sometimes collaborated. I mean, Iran can sometimes be fairly pragmatic. You remember the Iran-Contra affair? I mean, it should be the Iran-Israel-Contra right. affair, right. right? Because it was selling arms and, you know, uh, getting funds to go to the Contra. But that was Israeli, you know, brokering arms sales to Iran, I believe, is uh, is the... Uh, that's how uh, that's how uh, Israel is it, was, is it was because involved. Israel is seen as expansionist and an ally of America. And if you don't stop Israel, it'll take over the, the Middle East. Is well, Iran is sort of the a natural regional hegemon of like at least the eastern part of the Middle East region. Um, and, um, you know, uh, the Islamic uh, revolution of Iran was uh, not only to get rid of uh, the Shah, who's, uh, you know, a dictator, but because he was an agent of U.S. policy to the benefit of the oil companies. Uh, you know, there had already been attempts to nationalize the oil that had been, um, you know, uh, undermined uh, by uh, CIA and uh, British intelligence collaborating to get rid of Mossadegh and then restore the Shah, right, to his prominent political power. Um, but it was also a rejection of the U.S. role in the Middle East. And that policy is seen to be prosecuted uh, by, um, you know, Israeli interests as a firm plank of U.S. control of the region. Um, so they are an anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist. They play upon that as the main political orientation of their foreign policy. And um, and. Um, uh, you know, that that means that uh, they're going to have a particular position of uh, uh, opposing Saudis. I don't think this has that much to do at all with Sunni versus Shi Shia at all. It has to do with, um, um, you know, policy uh, in the region for how resources are going to be shared. Um, 
you know, uh, who's going to have political control and influence. And um, to be honest, I think it was Professor Juan Cole who uh, mentioned uh, a couple of years ago now, perhaps on this show, we should About bring it being back. Pr- it's a progressive. That it, it, that blew it me was away. like a populist and, yeah. uh, you know, in certain respects, progressive, but certainly a populist orientation, whereas, right. you know, the U.S. is constantly supporting, you know, small elite groupings to suppress and repress the people of the Middle East and siphon away, you know, those resources or at least the control over how they're going to be coming into the world market and so on. And and that's that's the struggle there. Yeah. I see I see Professor Marianne is is in the house. It's great to see her. And great to see you. But you know, I was just listening to you a, little, uh, a few minutes ago. You were talking about this increasing nationalism, both in the case of Turkey and Russia, and I wonder if that's in no small part due to this globalism, which isn't the globalism of oh, let's celebrate each other's you know multicultural blah blah blah, but it's basically another rugged individualism where you know it's it's a uh, race to the bottom for. Uh, getting the best costs of labor and resources. And if you're the educated class, you're a citizen of the world. You can go anywhere and you really put down, and and I I think this played into Brexit somewhat, that people, particularly in the uh, northern deindustrialized areas, did not feel the benefits of of being part of a European Union, you know, because they were rooted to their community. They were rooted to their traditional jobs. And, you know, they just didn't feel that that. And by the way, no one has yet explained to me how the European Parliament works. How how does the popular will of anybody within the European Union, you know, get expressed to Brussels via the European Parliament? Or is that just a recommendation? A body that recommends. Well, they vote. You you vote. For- How do they vote? But what does that mean? I mean, are, are are they statutory? Does that have the force of law in the countries? Then in the in the uh, uh, you know member countries. I don't really know. I'm I'm not trying. You know. Well, they. I'm, I'm I think they foster. have an exe- They have an executive branch. They have a parliament. Uh, but many people feel that you know. Mm-hmm. That, that the parliament or the at Brussels uh, uh, policies coming out of Brussels does not really address their concerns. When I was when I was in uh, Scotland, they they had the Brexit vote taking place, and it was the whole lead up. And I was listening to local BBC type of uh, uh, debates about this. And the one thing I noticed was that they did not go along any traditional left right axis at all. I mean, it's uh, it, it was really people who were more people who were more cosmopolitan people around uh, the uh, the financial area districts of London. Um, they voted overwhelmingly to stay in. People in the north yeah, voted to leave because, quite frankly, they were not seeing the benefits, and they just felt, you know, rather distanced and disconnected from people making decisions that had real effects on their lives, more so than like the Queen and English Parliament. So I'm just wondering if this nationalism 
that's that seems to be happening all over the world is in part a reaction against, you know, the U.S., you know, Wall Street, the international bank, you know, the Deutsche Banks and the Goldman Sachs of this world. The IMF. Uh, well, and, and, and uh, I think you're pointing out also that the EU as an institution seems to have pursued policies that reinforced uh, neoliberal policies, austerity yeah. politics, um, and certainly when we had the crisis, uh, the debt crisis, um, you know, in Greece and other Southern European countries, uh, the monetary union was used in such a way that it meant that you have to slash your budgets, you have to cut your pensions, you have to do all of these things. Yeah, you and basically had to do all of this to pay off Deutsche Bank's bad bets of the previous few years. That's right. And, you know, what benefit were people gaining from that? I mean, so it did spur uh, kind of a sense that we need sovereignty to be able to make our own decisions fiscally, because um, although the European Parliament doesn't make decisions that hold the force of law within the countries, it seems uh, that nonetheless, the monetary policy trumps, you know, uh, national decisions, right? So that's one reason why you have uh, nationalism. The European project is at a low ebb now. It's not very popular. You know, I don't think um, people see a lot of benefit for themselves to be part of the EU unless you're Germany, you know? Um, well, I mean, the EU, EU had a chance after the two, you know, when you have when you have big, powerful structures on their knees, you know, dependent on governments, that is the time. That is the opportunity to make, you know, radical changes to the way things happen, like we had when Barack Obama came to office. I mean, they were absolutely the banks were absolutely dependent on the government coming in. And we could have demanded made demands at that point, kind of like the Roosevelt administration did the European Union could have made policies that benefited the citizens of the European Union as a whole. Instead, they decided to, you know, make the banks whole, just like we did. And I think to this day, you're seeing the fallout. I mean, the people had no problem ascribing these right-wing movements and these neo-fascist groups and ultranationalists as reactions to the austerity that was gripping Europe at the time. It's, now it's all getting blurred with with Ukraine, but you know the fact remains that uh, you know, hey, look, three years ago, uh, I I read part of the letter three years ago, not even. There were 40 congressmen signed a letter to Mike Pompeo demanding that our State Department recognize groups in Ukraine, like the Azov Battalion, as terrorist organizations, putting putting them on the official terrorist list. You know, we had no problem understanding what was going on there. But now, you know, the war, the war has shifted the narrative and, you know, uh, we we kind of play that down. But, you know, the war, of course, another case in point, the war is a business now for many corrupt politicians all over the world, particularly Ukraine and our military industrial complex. It, it, it appears that, you know, the how the war is conducted and, and actually Ukraine coming out whole isn't the primary concern of these people. 
It's that the war continues because we continue pouring billions, which we know does not get to the front lines, most of it. We know that it's not going to, we don't really even know where it's going because we basically handed them 54, 54 billion. I, I hear it's like 70 billion and counting with no accountability at all. So people, this is a boondoggle. This is a bonanza for certain people that would love to keep this situation going. So, you know, there's no serious negotiations for peace. There's no serious, there's no even serious far-term war planning. I mean, there seems to be a reckless disregard in the State Department for where this all ends. I mean, even ghouls like Henry Kissinger have enough IQ points still functioning to know that you know, the end point of this is not going to be good for the world, and it certainly may not be good for for the United States. Ukraine, we know, is completely expendable in in these in the in the neoliberal kind of you know mind view. Well, it's good for the United States. We're selling weapons. We're also going to be selling weapons to Cyprus, Professor Hussein. That's the new market. Well, Cyprus is a pretty small place, so I don't know how much money is to be made there, but maybe one or two Congress people will benefit. I don't know. That's uh, it's not big news. Um, I think uh, Cyprus. Um, do you know how large this contract is uh, for? Well, I, I thought Erdogan was upset that we're going to start. Oh well, of course, yes, of course, yeah. That's going to. Uh, you know, Turkey, this is the thing. I mean, I love Turkey and actually I'm quite interested in the fact that Howie Klein, you know, is so interested in uh, this uh, Turkish uh, serial program that I've also seen all the episodes of. I didn't know he was a devotee of it as well. Ertuğrul and later. Osman, yeah, how do you spell that? What is the name of that? Well, it's called Resurrection Ertuğrul and it's spelled E-R-T-U-G. It's actually Yamushak Gay. It's Ertuğrul. Rule not tug, but it's a G with a little tilde over it. Uh, R U L, so E R T U G R U L, and it's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Yeah, you can. Uh, it's it's like the first part. It's Dirilish Erturul Resurrection Erturul, and it's about the f- uh, father of um, Osman, the founder of the uh, you know Ottoman uh, dynasty. So very little is known about him historically, which is very useful for uh, story writers for a TV serial. You can set it in the context and you can um, develop all kinds of storylines about it since you're not constrained by actual history. But it's about the sort of origins of the Ottoman Empire um, in the context of the 13th century Anatolia, the era where you have Mongol uh uh, conquests, and you also have the Crusades, um, and um, you have the uh, Byzantine Empire. So those are the kind of key forces that this Turkic, Turkish polity under the Seljuk Turks, um, you know, this is a breakaway Turkish uh, emirate that becomes the basis for a world empire. And so this is also part of Turkish cultural nationalism is to look back at its history and see this destiny of a great, you know, system. But what's interesting is it is um, very much a celebration of this kind of multi-ethnic, multi-religious uh, community 
but all within this kind of Islamic uh, kind of cultural framework that things were better when the Muslims were ruling and allowing Jews, Christians, uh, and everybody to be there together. But, you know, you still have to have, you know, the great wise Muslim ruler on top in order mm-hmm. for this, you know, system to work, right? So there's this nostalgia for resolution a lot of the of a lot of these um, contemporary ethno-religious, linguistic, and nationalist uh, tensions through the prism of this great history. So, I mean, I, you know, so... You know, I think Turkey is a really wonderful culture, uh, a great uh, country. Everyone should visit so much history. It's amazing. But there are so many issues, you know, as a result of the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. So there's a border dispute with Syria, you know, the Arab part. There are Arabs in, you know, basically north of Latakia and Iskenderun, uh, used to be called Alexandretta, right? Uh, That's an Arab region. So is uh Urfa in the south uh e- southeast these are arabic speaking uh areas you've got kurdish you know uh, you know uh population a large kurdish population that has been suppressed you have you know turks uh in bulgaria you have these turks in uh greece that had to be you know repatriated and the greek speaking people sent in the 20s and then you have cyprus which is of course, a Greek, historically Greek island, but during the course of the Ottoman uh, Empire, there settled Turkish-speaking populations as part of the Ottoman Empire, was all part of the Ottoman Empire. What do you do when it comes under British colonialism? Now you've got this mixed population, and what do the British always seem to do? You know, whether it's India, Pakistan, whether it's Northern Ireland, is they leave these kind of ethno-national problems there. And so Turkey takes an interest in the Turkish-speaking Cypriot population, you know, uh, when they're worried that a right-wing kind of government in Greece, you know, takes over. Uh, They're worried about the Turkish population being suppressed by this, you know, kind of right-wing military nationalist uh, group. So they invade, you know, this terrible war and the island has been divided. So, of course... When we talk about how we're selling weapons to Cyprus, we're talking about the Greek Cyprus, right? The, you know, uh, and not the little enclave that Turkey and Pakistan, I think it used to be Pakistan. I don't know if they still recognize it. It used to be there was only two countries that recognized this northern Cyprus Republic of North. I forget the name of it, but it was Turkey. And the only way you could get to that, get to that part of the island um, was taking a flight from Istanbul. You can get there. Uh, and I've been there, actually. Um, you could not get there from anywhere else because nobody recognizes this as an independent country. Um, it's a little bit like how, you know, you've got these uh, populations, like we were just saying, Nagorno-Karabakh. It's like Armenia is the only country that recognized the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh, right? The same thing, Turkey recognized Northern Cy- Cyprus. Um, and that's been, you know, a problem since the, right, when when did the, the invasion take place? It was like the early 70s, 73 or 74. And um, the island's been divided, you know? Refugees created, people who can look over the, the barrier in Lefke and they can say, that used to be my house, you know, right over there. And um, it's just a sad situation, um, 
I'm not sure selling weapons to Cyprus is going to help anything, but it's certainly going to raise tensions with Turkey. It's going to help America. Absolutely. And that's the important thing. That's the important. Well, thank, I should let you. Uh, um, thank you, Professor Adnan. Thank Hussein. you very much. Uh, Mudgeless podcast, Guerrilla History. Tell us very quickly. Oh, uh, on Guerrilla History, uh, we just had an episode, uh, the second episode in our Sanctions as War series. So we talked with Greg Elich about sanctions on Yugoslavia during the Balkan War there and the breakup of the of uh, Yugoslavia. And before that, the week prior, we had uh, kind of a geopolitics uh, discussion with Ben Norton on multipolarity, the coming world. What does this look like? That was an interesting discussion. Uh, and on the Mudgeless uh, this week, uh, you, you know, uh, check out um, a new episode with my former MA student, who's now a PhD student at Princeton, uh, uh, talking about her MA uh, thesis research about medieval uh, North Africa and the Mediterranean world. Not anarchy. No, that was uh, prior. That's the latest episode that's still there. So go do right. do check out um, my discussion with Muhammad Abdu about his new book, Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Resonances. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you. You are absolutely amazing. And by the way, Rahima.org, go to Rahima.org and donate. It is a food pantry for refugees that Professor Hussein's parents have set up in the Bay Area. And you go to that website and you just know that it's good food. Speaking of good, so it's Rahima.org. Go to, if you, I don't ask you for much on this show, go to Rahima.org and donate some money to help. Uh, it started off with uh, refugees from Afghanistan. I don't know how it's expanded, but I don't ask you for much. Go to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A. They serve good food. You know, Professor Marianne, there's a, a gentleman. He's the chief operating officer for Beyond Meat. His name is Doug Ramsey, and he's a big fan of basketball. He went to see the Razorbacks playing Missouri State. He got into a little fight after the game. And did I mention? Razorbacks, is that, is that Arkansas? I, I, I would think so. And the chief operating officer for Beyond Meat uh, was arrested Saturday in Fayetteville, Arkansas, after he allegedly bit the flesh from the nose of another man in a fist fight after the game. This is the chief operating officer for the vegan, vegan alternative Beyond Meat. Sounds I like he... Know. Sounds like he could use maybe some. that you know um, Franken food or whatever they came up with is kind of sort you know exciting the Tyrannosaur hindbrain in certain yeah. people. I don't know. I, I I myself wouldn't touch that stuff, but you know. Or now are, I forget. Are you vegan, vegetarian? Yeah. yeah, and I don't even want to call myself vegan. I just want to call myself plant based. You know, vegan is almost becoming kind of a fad. Right. I mean. Oreos are vegan. Yes. Nothing is them probably has ever touched dirt, but I mean, right. you know, not exactly healthy. But, you know, you just want to have healthy food. 
And I tell people that even the guys who uh, were big proponents of plant-based diet, people like uh, Caldwell Esselstyn, and who did the, the he did the Cleveland study, which was called the Harvard study for some uh, reason, that showed that a that a low-fat plant-based diet could reverse can reverse incurable heart disease in all the patients that went through that program. He did. That was not greeted with enthusiasm in the medical world, but but uh, Colin, let's see, it was uh, Colin Campbell was uh, head of the uh, big plant-based uh, advocate for years and years, a head of the uh, Cornell University Nutrition Department and author of the China study. I mean, the book about the China study, they, he and a colleague in Taiwan discovered that Chow and Lai, before he died, ordered this massive surveillance uh, survey of the country because he was dying of bladder cancer, I think. And he decided that because he became a proponent of more naturalistic uh, traditional medicine, and he wanted to know how diet affected, you know, people in various regions. And so there was just like millions of people went out and did these surveys. And uh, later it was, I mean, this uh, Taiwanese doctor and Campbell discovered that this survey had been done. So they raised some money and they did follow-ups on this entire survey. And that uh, the summary was in his book, The China Study, which old Bill Clinton read at the behest of Chelsea, because Bill Clinton was told in 2010 that there was no more that could be done for his uh, advancing heart disease. And uh, he has become plant-based ever since, and all these people. I'm not making a joke. Hang on for one second. This is not a joke. No. He claims he's a vegan, but he... Uh, uh, Oh, okay. So who claims he's a vegan? He claims uh, he's a vegan, but he but, eats fish. Like Hillary, he cheats on his diet. That, that. Well, Colin, he said he, he used to eat turkey once a year and maybe fish once a year. But now I read fairly recently that he said he doesn't even do that. Doesn't matter. Even Colin Campbell said, look, if you keep your total calories from animals, sources of all kinds, down below 5%. You know, you will that effectively turns off a whole bunch of of, of cancers. Um, what about eggs? Yeah. What about so, eggs? Oh, eggs are kind of like liquid meat, you know, same kind of. Well, it's it's not just the fat, but it's the protein that um, irritates the endothelial lining of your uh, of your artery system of your uh, circulation system. And that is where like well over 90% of the heart and pulmonary disease arises in. So it was true. I've known since I was a kid that cholesterol was only the symptom. You know, it's, it's, it's basically your, your, your body trying to, you know, cover over eruptions in your veins because they're, you know, they're being irritated. But if the cholesterol builds up too much, then, you know, the symptom itself becomes fatal because, you know, it, it, makes blockages and and causes strokes and many many strokes and things like that so yeah i mean diet uh can pretty much eliminate a lot of you know sort of the uh the the degenerative diseases of affluence you know the heart disease the type 2 diabetes you know the uh, obesity things like that um, you would think countries in asia 
that saw what plant-based diets, how great they are, that, that when Pepsi and KFC and McDonald's are introduced, their population starts contracting heart disease for the first time, right? Weren't there some Asian countries that didn't have heart disease until we introduced- If you, if, if you read another plant-based guy, um, uh, John, uh, let's see, Caldwell Alstison was the guy that was at the Cleveland Clinic. John McDougall has his own institute, but both of those guys did like five-year internships uh, dealing with Asian populations. McDougall did a five-year internship at uh, at a, a pineapple plantation in Hawaii. And so he writes about that. So he saw the generations, you know, he saw the, the people that <clears throat> basically had starchy diets, starchy vegetables and with meat or fish as a condiment, you know, not uh, a main ingredient at best. And he saw that things like prostate cancer, breast cancer just was were virtually non-existent in the, that population. When the second generation is eating meat, eating, you know, getting more westernized diets, then you saw, you know, the heart disease, the, the, the lung cancer, the prostate cancer, the breast cancer. And then by the third and fourth generation where the kids are eating at McDonald's, there is virtually no difference between them and the Americans. And uh, it's, it's quite stunning. Estelson saw the same thing when he was stationed in the Philippines. He was uh, he's he saw the generational difference in <clears throat> the kind of diseases people got. So um, all three of them, it's I think it's well, it's over 10 years old, but it's still fairly very relevant. It's called Forks Over Knives. There are all three are featured in that. But I did remember reading in The New York <coughs> Times in graduate school, uh, the Estelson study. And it was called the Harvard study because Harvard reviewed it. And the result was, well, yeah, he cured heart disease, but <laughs> you can't expect people to make such radical changes in their lives. Right. I just laughed aloud when, when I read that. These are terminally ill people, you know, people who can barely walk. And, you know, but perfectly reasonable to solve when people's, you know, sternum crack open their rib cage, you know yank plumbing out of their legs and, right. you know, just reroute everything. I mean, it's just amazing the mindset when reading this article in the New York Times that reported in 1989 about the results of this. So years later, I saw the video. I'm going, oh, wait a minute, that guy. Okay. <laughs> I read I read your damn book. I read your damn study. So when but, did you become uh, a vegan? Um. I know exactly the day that I decided I was going to, and I can't remember what year it was, but it was probably, I'd been a vegetarian forever. I wanted to be one when I was a kid. It was rather hard in a meat and potatoes house, but I come to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it's very easy. In fact, when I was at Michigan, I was practically vegan anyway, because I was doing macrobiotic and it was very easy to get. Um, going to Fermilab, then you have the power cheese pizza and Diet Coke dinners, you know, running shift, but... Right. I uh, remember about 12 years ago having uh, get, getting some cheese enchiladas or something and just looking at this, taking a bite and looking at this cheese going, this is so damn unhealthy. I mean, it's it's just at that point, I realized that um, and I've been reading about people who were mostly plant based and. I thought this is nuts. And by by that time, I pretty much knew that 
the dairy industry is is hardly benign. It, it's actually, in terms of you know chickens that are are forced to lay eggs, you know, for a year and a half of their miserable lives, it's actually more humane. The, the life of a chicken bred for slaughter is only 42 miserable days and then the end. Now, so, I, yeah, John uh, Ross has chickens on his farm and he eats yeah. the eggs and he says he insists they're healthy. Would you eat, would you, would you keep a chicken and eat those eggs? Uh, at this time, you know, uh, I don't need to. I mean, I, I really don't need to. Even that, I know people, I know I have friends who have chickens, actually, just uh, outside of the city limits is Aurora Township, which doesn't have restriction on farm animals. So, um, but they get their chicks, you know, they get their hens from, they order them from companies. And of course, you know, these companies are make a lot of money and um, they have to sort out the male chicks from the female chicks. And that's rather gruesome. Right. Um, sorting out the male calves from female calves that will go on to, you know, be milkers. That's gruesome. And you have to keep these cows pregnant for them to be producing all this milk. I mean, it's, um, look, you know, having meat or animal products as it occasionally there in many places, that's an essential source of protein for people, you know, but I, the way I look at it, is that even if it weren't the optimal diet, I think it's the optimal diet for me, but even if it weren't, um, I want to reduce my, not my, just my carbon footprint, but my just ecological footprint. And I don't like the cruelty. I mean, I can't turn away from the cruelty. Right. I, I, so it's, it's just, um, you know, <laughs> you're not so allowed I, to see where your food comes from. There are ag gag laws. That's right. They Ga- do- uh, Yeah. Ag gag rules. Oprah, Oprah was threatening with being right. sued because she was like somebody was on her show and they showed the, you know, they showed the inside of a slaughterhouse and, there and she are just laws. made the statement. She just made the statement. Well, I don't know if I'm, I don't know one of the next, if something about, Beef. Uh, I'm going to think about this when I order my next hamburger. I don't think I can order my next hamburger after what she said something like that. And then she got hit big time with a major lawsuit um, and the, basically she had an effective gag order on her. I mean, the settlement was, she couldn't talk about this. There are laws that forbid you from bad mouthing certain types of fruits and meats in certain States. And you're not allowed to film. You're not allowed to put a GoPro mm-hmm. on your lapel and go into a slaughterhouse anymore. But, you know, there are people that do and, you know, um, there, 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 there are there are vegan groups that do it. Um, who is it? who is the group that um, protests all the uh, people who wear mink in New York? Peta. Peta. Oh yeah, that group. Yeah, the Peta people will go in and have done that. Yeah. And it's grim and it's horrible. Um, but you know, getting off the cruelty food chain is you know something I, I encourage people to do. Um, and then, of course, there are the people who actually work in these industries. I mean, it's a grim, it, it is a grim business to be working in these slaughterhouses like that Tyson runs and mm. the big slaughterhouse in, in, in Nebraska. I can't remember who's, 
whose company that was. I, I think that might be Tyson also. And there's a reason why it's mostly like immigrants and mostly undocumented in immigrants working in these places, because this is a nasty, brutal job. People I would, I the, would uh, find it calming, slitting the throats. I'm kidding. Let's bring you and, in- You and Hannibal Lecter. Stick around. Let's bring in Professor Jonathan Bick. What, what are you going to talk about tonight? And then we have Jackie the Joke Man. No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, talk about cruel and unusual. (laughs) (laughs) Although I have to say, I watched Airplane recently. Ooh, boy, politically incorrect, but that's still the funniest movie I ever saw. Everything is... Everything. I mean, the jokes, and they are unrelenting. They never stop coming, which is, I guess is sort of the secret of Jackie the Jokeman's. Did you ever see the movie it's based on? Sterling, I think oh, Sterling no. Hayden. Yeah, I did, years ago. There is a serious movie that the yeah. movie Airplane is based on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, something Zero. So let me check the channel. Yeah, I can't remember, but you're right. I do. Somebody, it's, I think it was on the Turner Classic Movie Channel. Yeah, and yeah. Ben Mankiewicz pointed out that that was the um, inspiration yeah. for for airplane. Yeah. Ann Lee, Professor Ann Lee, nothing. We no, we haven't stumped Professor Ann Lee. No, uh, stumped. Professor Bick joins us. Uh, yes, hello, David, and hello, Professor Marianne. Coming. What would you like to talk about tonight? Well, I was going to talk about. Um, you know, I was watching the uh, the funeral for the Queen, and I, I became very sad, David. Uh, not for the 96-year-old deceased monarch, uh, but for the fact that people were lining up by the hundreds of thousands to walk by her coffin. Yes. Um, and that free speech uh, is punished in the UK, uh, if you express a dissenting view about the royals or the monarchy. I think that's that's very sad. Um, and I w- wanted to raise a few stories that, you know, kind of go to uh, rich people behaving badly. Um, and uh, one of those uh, was written by Douglas Rushkoff, who has a, a book coming out soon. Uh, he he wrote a uh, article in the Observer, which is a, a UK newspaper, and uh, he's a he's a writer and a filmmaker on media, technology, and popular culture. He also uh, teaches media studies at New York University and uh, the New School in New York. And he is often approached by people to talk about um, the impact on technology on our lives and and the future of technology. Um, So he thought when he was hired by a a group of people um, to go out to the desert, I think it was in in the Western United States, uh, to have a conference with them, he thought he would be talking about that subject, you know, um, the future of technology. Um, 
And he had prepared a, a speech to do that. But when he arrived there, um, he was taken to a place where he was seated at a small table and uh, five men came in the room and, and sat down at the table with him. Two of them were billionaires and uh, three uh, had hundreds of millions of dollars. And they began asking him questions. So these were people, by the way, from the uh, tech investing world and the, uh, the hedge fund world. And they started asking questions about, uh, you know, what's the best place to go, uh, New Zealand or Alaska? Because the world's going to experience uh, a catastrophic um, collapse, or society is, civilization is. So he, they want to know where they should go, where they should build their underground bunkers um, to survive this, uh, this coming collapse. And, you know, they're asking questions like, should, should the shelter have its own air supply? And, um, you know, uh, should we take precautions against nuclear weapons or, or biological warfare? Um, you know, do we need our own uh, supply of groundwater? Do we have to filter things like this? And um, the CEO of a brokerage house, which was one of these guys, uh, asked him, how do I maintain authority over my security force after the event? And the event's the ultimate collapse they're talking about. And he said that occupied uh, them for the rest of the hour, that question. He said uh, they knew the armed guards would be required to protect their compounds from raiders as well as angry mobs. One had already secured a dozen Navy SEALs to make their way to his compound if he gave them the right cue. But how would he pay the guards once his uh, crypto and other money was worthless? What would stop the guards from eventually choosing their own leader and you know, taking over the place for themselves? Uh, so they considered using special combination locks on the food supply uh, lockers. Uh, or making guards wear disciplinary collars hmm. in return for their you know, survival and supply of food and so forth. Or maybe building robots to serve as guards and workers if uh, the technology could be developed in time. Well, this is kind of the, the thought process that's going on in these uh, billionaires and multimillionaires' heads. And so Douglas uh, Rushkoff says, uh, I tried to reason with them. I tried to talk to them about, well, maybe, you know, the way you get people not wanting to kill you is by <laughs> treating them well. Mm, I have an idea. You know? Yeah. You know, maybe, you know, if they're working for you, pay them well and, and take care of them. Um give them good working conditions. And maybe you want to contribute to things that would, uh, you know, avoid uh, possible collapse. Maybe we ought to try to work together uh, to do that. Uh, they weren't really interested in that. They just kind of rolled their eyes and kept asking their very specific uh, questions. 
And he concluded that that these guys were preparing for a digital feature that had less to do with making the world a better place than it did with transcending the human condition altogether. Their extreme wealth and privilege served only to make them obsessed with insulating themselves from the very real and present danger of climate change, rising sea levels, mass migrations, global pandemics, nativist panic, and resource depletion. For them, the future of technology is only about one thing, escape from the rest of us. Right. They see themselves first of all, above everyone else. And then they want to be completely apart from everyone else, except for those people that they hire to protect them and serve them. And then they're worried about how to control those people. So, um, you know, this kind of thinking <laughs> is seems to be fairly... Um, out in the open now. It, it, yeah. It's, 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 it was always in the past hard for me to wrap my head around it. I didn't believe people were really like that, even the, even the people I worked for. But they really do see people, they're two types of people, you know, me and them, those who are served and those who serve. Well, you know, I would at that point, if it's really total collapse, would be dividing the world into who does their own plumbing, wiring, exactly. uh, blacksmithing and exactly. carpentry and who can't. Exactly. I always say that in New York City, everybody's an intellectual until they need a plumber. I mean, I you could put a gun to my head. I still couldn't figure out how to fix a leak. You could, though, I bet, Professor Marianne. Right? Uh, you're, you live in an old house like this. You sort of have to be at least, you know, baseline proficient at a lot of things. Professor Bick, can, are you handy around the house? Uh, in you're handsy ways. around the house. From I'm handsy, for sure. Yeah. But not... Uh, <laughs> Handy, uh, it depends on the task. So go on, go on. Okay. So, uh, I mean, you know, uh, and, and Rushkoff calls this way of thinking the mindset, and it, which encourages its adherents to believe that the winners can somehow leave the rest of us behind. And it allows for easy externalization of harm to others and inspires a corresponding longing for transcendence and separation from people and places that have been abused. So a lot of these guys, you know, some of these guys are thinking about, well, how do I, how do I live forever? Uh, How do I transfer my consciousness into a mechanical being or computer or, or something like that? So they're really trying to escape being human in addition to es- to escaping from the rest of humanity, which as social animals is uh, really suicidal. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, even if these guys were successful, let's say they make these luxury bunkers in New Zealand or Alaska or wherever the hell they're going to make them. And they're somehow uh, successful in, in 
having security guards that aren't going to turn against them. Uh, their lives are still going to suck, right? I, I, you know, they're they're cut off from the rest of the world. Uh, they're constantly worried that that people who work for them are going to turn on them. Uh, almost all of the luxuries that they currently enjoy are going to be lost to them. Luxury goods, luxury services, being in the sunlight, walking on a beach or in a forest. They'll be too afraid to go outside of their compound, right? Or their underground bunker or whatever the hell they're in. Um, they're not going to have, you know, expertly prepared food. Uh, the type of food they're going to get is going to be uh, severely restricted, and uh, what about medical care? I mean, how many doctors are they going to bring into their bunkers? Are they going to have specialist, all the specialists that they need? They, where are they going to get all the drugs that they need to stay alive? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, these people are not thinking this through. Um, you know, another approach would be let's network among all these billionaires and people with hundreds of millions of dollars and say, you know what? Uh, what we've been doing isn't working. So let's pool our money instead of fighting tax cuts um, to find a way for us to collectively address these issues that are threatening our existence. Because that's the only true way that they're going to be able to live decent lives in the future. And their children will be able to live decent lives. Mm. Great job. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, this is um, this brings me to one more uh, issue on the Massachusetts ballot and the state of Ma- Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Question number one will be on the ballot that says uh, it's a proposed amendment to the Constitution of this Commonwealth of Massachusetts that would establish an additional 4% state income tax on that portion of annual taxable income in excess of $1 million. So it might surprise a lot of people to know that Massachusetts, which is a liberal state, a deep blue state, has a flat tax for their income tax. Really? Yes. Everyone pays 5%. I didn't know that. It's in the, in fact, it's in the constitution of the state. Um, so this would change that. And it would only be, this increase would only apply to people who are, make over a million dollars a year in income. And the people who oppose this are saying things like, and this is in this uh this is the actual uh, voter's guide that the state sends out for these questions. And they put f- arguments in favor and against. And the people who say are against it say, it nearly doubles the state income tax on tens of thousands of small businesses, large employers, and retirees. Well, no. Um First of all, they say it nearly doubles because it's going from 5% to a maximum of 9% on income over a million dollars you make in one year. So that's a little misleading to say that. Um, 
And this would affect a very small percentage of people who live in Massachusetts. And they go on to say, oh, well, what about, um, you know, people who have held their uh, primary residence for 40 years and it's appreciated over time and they sell it and they get a big capital gain? Well, okay. Um, How many people are going to have a million dollar gain on their house when they sell it? I, I think it's going to be quite small. Uh, and even if they do do that, and, and remember, this is after they deduct all of the improvements made, they made, made to the house over 40 years. So if you replace the roof, if you um, replace the windows or the gutters or pave the driveway or whatever it is, you can deduct all of that from the capital appreciation of the house. So it's only on that gain that you made minus all of those all those expenses or expenditures. Um, and then it's only on the portion that's over a million dollars in game that you'd be paying this extra 4%. I don't think that's a lot to ask. Right. And, and this money would be going to public education and transportation. So paving roads, uh, uh, fixing bridges, uh, making public education affordable, higher education affordable in the state, and improving uh, public education at every level in the state. Right. Now, the poll in August, um, sorry, in July, showed that this was this is favored to win by 56% for, 38% against, and the rest are undecided. But a group of uh, billionaires and millionaires have gotten together and raised uh, $9 million to put ads on television in Massachusetts to oppose this measure. So we will see if people in Massachusetts, the bluest of the blue states, can resist the propaganda that's going to be coming at them from this coalition of uh, multi-millionaires and billionaires to oppose something that is obviously in their interest, which is to increase the uh, state income tax for those making over a million dollars a year. Uh, you know, I so I, when I look at the people lining up for the Queen's, you know, to walk past the Queen's coffin, and I look at people who vote against their own interests when they have a opportunity to directly vote on something that unambiguously is going to benefit them in terms of transportation and or education in the state and make the state more attractive for businesses to come to because of, they have highly educated people and they have ways of getting around the state you know, the the roads that are, you know, not filled with potholes and bridges that aren't falling into rivers. Um, Can, can they resist this propaganda that's going to be coming at them and make this change to the Massachusetts constitution? I certainly hope so. Well, we'll find out. Thank you. If I got hit with that tax, I'd be celebrating. I'd be (laughs) a case of crystal. Oh, I'd love to have that kind of problem. Yes. Oh, oh, by the way, the biggest contributor to this campaign against it 
Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots. Who uh, was arrested in a massage parlor. Yeah. I, uh, really? Is, is he have anything to do with the Kraft Corporation? That I don't Kraft know. Cheese? Oh, okay. I don't, I don't think so, but. Uh, okay. Thank you, Professor Marianne. Follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. And thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. We'll see you Thursday for the professors and Marianne. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Great job. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We are going to go to Jackie the Joke Man, and then we'll be back, and I'll take your calls. Stay with me. All right, it's time for Jackie the Joke Man Martling. He's back from New York, from beautiful Bayville, on the glorious Gold Coast of Long Island's North Shore. Let's welcome our old friend Jackie the Joke Man Martling. Check him out on TikTok. A great joke every day. Go to TikTok.com forward slash at Jackie Martling. Check him out. Go to TikTok.com forward slash at Jackie Martling. And you'll also love Jackie's autobiography, The Joke Man, Bow to Stern, great capitalization, and a minimum of spelling mistakes. Perfect gifts. <laughs> you want personalized videos? Go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling for all show information. Go to jokeland.com. Jackie, it's so great to see you again. Well, I would love to say that back, but I just don't (laughs) feel it. (laughs) Mommy, mommy, what's an amputation? Shut up and hand me that chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) And he's back. A little old lady shows up at a prison on visiting day and she says to the guard, I'm here for a conjugal visit. He says, with who? She says, whoever is available, I'm a volunteer. (laughs) That's sweet. That's sweet. A cave woman screams to the caveman, saber-toothed tiger just ran into mother's cave. He says, so I should care what happens to saber-toothed tiger? <laughs> Even back then. Even back then. Two, two guys are sitting at a bar, and the first guy says, Here's a great one. Two Jews are walking down the street. The other guy says, Wait, stop. Enough with the Jew jokes. I'm Jewish, and it's it's got a little tired. Pick another religion. First guy says, All right, all right. Two Buddhists are walking down the street, and the first Buddhist says, I hear you caught your wife sucking off the rabbi in the courtroom at your son's bar mitzvah. <laughs> I love it. A guy goes up to the band leader in a bar and he says, Do you guys take requests? The band leader says, Sure. What would you like us to play? The guy says, Chess, soccer, poker, anything but those fucking instruments. (laughs) (laughs) 
A guy says to the bartender, last night my wife said the weather outside was fit for neither man nor beast. So we stayed home. (laughs) 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 Mrs. Johnson, can Johnny come out and play? I'm sorry, boys. Johnny has leprosy. Well, can we come in and watch him rot? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know why there's a knob at the end of my cock? Why is that, Jack? I've always wanted to know. That's to keep your brother's hand from sliding off. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for clearing that up. I appreciate it. A guy says to the bartender, you know, yesterday I picked up some roadkill, went on the Internet, found a roadkill recipe. I followed it pretty closely. And man, it was delicious. Now I just have to figure out what to do with the bike. (laughs) 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 It's a thinker. It's a thinker. You know, a guy falls off a cliff. Guy falls off a cliff on his way down to certain death. A huge Buddha appears and catches the guy in his big green hand. The guy goes, thank God. So the Buddha squishes the guy. (laughs) 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 Little competition thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So a guy, the guy says to the bartender, you know, I'll never forget my grandfather's last words. Are you still holding the ladder? (laughs) 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 These are good. These are good. They're fantastic. A guy wants to marry a very innocent girl, so he moves to Des Moines, dates a girl in the church choir. They get married, and they go to New York City on their honeymoon. First night, they're sitting in the hotel lobby, and his bride says, those women at the bar over there are all dressed up, but they're all alone. He says, well, uh, they're hookers. Hookers? What's that mean? Uh, they get paid hundreds of dollars for having sex with men. She says, you're shit me. The fucking priest only gave us apples. <laughs> 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 All right, so two single girls, two single girls are at the bar in the Catskills talking about their guys. The first one says, the guy I'm seeing has a Ferrari, a beach house in East Hampton, and he showers me with gifts. The second one says, really? <laughs> well, the guy I'm seeing has a schmeckle what sticks out so far, 12 canaries can perch on it. Yeah, a few more drinks, a few more drinks. After a while, the first girl says, you know, I got to tell you, I exaggerated just a bit. It ain't a Ferrari, it's a Dodge Dart. His beach house is a small place in Levittown with an inflatable pool. And the only thing he's ever given me is a few beers to loosen me up so he can stoop me. The second one says, I exaggerated myself. The 12th canary can only stand on one foot. (laughs) 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 So a woman has gained a lot of weight. A woman's gained a lot of weight, so she goes to the doctor. He says, don't eat anything fatty. 
She mean no bacon or burgers or sausages? He says, no, fatty, just don't eat anything. (laughs) 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 What would you call a pill that not only gives you a heart on, but makes you want to fuck everybody? What? (laughs) Viagra. (laughs) 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 Well, that joke's back from when there was only uh, two ways. Now there's like 19,000. I want to know. I want to know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. A guy says to the bartender, Jesus Christ, kids today are so different. Things have changed so much. Bartenders just tell me about it, especially sex wise. My God, these kids are wild nowadays. <laughs> At my high school prom, I was the only guy who even got a hand job, and I was lying. <laughs> <laughs> So the bartender says to a woman at the bar, you know, every time I see you and your husband, it seems like you guys don't get along. She says, we don't. But then why'd you get married? It was a case of opposites attract. I was pregnant and he wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) So you tell a woman she's beautiful. Tell a woman she's beautiful a thousand times and she'll still act like she never heard it before. But you call a woman fat once, and she'll always remember it. Well, be, because elephants never forget. Oh, <laughs> we can't. You see, that? no, these are nice people, Jackie. We can't, we can't. Yeah, but some are big, fat fucking pigs. All right, Jackie, be nice, be nice. I didn't mean you. I know. And I didn't mean just women. I'm talking about every couple uh, from the Midwest. Don't <laughs> pretend you've never been to Disney World. God damn it. You sit down at a table for six and there's two people there. <laughs> God, these people, they, they, they don't have a mirror. <laughs> All right, be nice. So be after nice. the week, get off that fat shit. After the weekly poker game, one of the guys says, you know, damn it. Harry wins every week. Every fucking week, Harry wins. How could he be that good at poker, but he can't pick a horse to save his life? Another guy says, that's because they won't let him shuffle the horses. (laughs) (laughs) The gynecologist says to the patient, "Um, I don't like the way it looks down there. She says, neither does my husband, but he says it feels great. So Shirley and a friend visit her husband's grave, and when they leave, Shirley backs up. <laughs> and her friend says, why did you back away from his grave? Well, Harry always told me I had an ass that could bring a dead man back to life, <laughs> and I ain't taking any chance. <laughs> so a doctor says, a doctor says to an old Jewish guy, how do you feel? The old guy says, I can't complain. The doctor says, how long has this been going on? (laughs) 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 An old big band singer is asked to record some of her old hits for a nostalgia album. And when she shows up at the studio, the only one there is the producer. She says, where's the band? He says, come on, honey, no more band. Everything's in the computer. No conductor, no horns. No drummer. 
He says, it's all in the computer. She says, well, then who do I fuck? (laughs) 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 All right. I'm going to do one last one because this is going on too long. These were all great. Every single one Thank of you. them, all great. I appreciate the it. fat jokes so, we guys, can do with that, but uh, you know. I hope you sit. I hope you're sitting down. I can't believe all the disgusting I say things I say, and we can't do a fat joke. You're a fucking idiot. Oh, that's true. But 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 I like you. Yeah, it is true. The, bar, the, the bartender says, "I'm sorry, I don't serve time travelers." A time traveler walks into a bar. <laughs> How wow. Great is that? Wow. <laughs> that is like, that is fantastic. That is fantastic. Jackie, the joke man, Martling. No, I'm not done. A guy says, a guy says, I was eating grandma's pussy and oh. I tasted horse semen. Don't interrupt me. This is a good one. A guy says, I was eating grandma's pussy and I you, tasted I'm sorry, horse we have a discon- you're, I'm sorry, you're breaking up. What, what is the setup? A guy says, I was eating grandma's pussy and I tasted horse mm, semen. Still not coming in. Can you, what, what was it again? There were two. <laughs> they were both. <laughs> they were all big. <laughs> all the big. <laughs> all right. Give me, give me that again. A guy says, I was eating grandma's pussy and I tasted horse semen. <laughs> His mother says, me too. Hmm. I wonder if that's what killed her. (laughs) The guy pulls his dick out of his mother's ass. He says, well, you certainly weren't about to do that kind of damage with that thing. (laughs) All right. All right. Oh, my God. You had to do it. You had to go there. You had to wait. You couldn't help yourself. Jackie the joke man. Dirty Dirty Johnny's sitting on the stairs outside of church, squashing ants on the cement with his thumb and saying, God damn ants. God damn ants. The priest walks up as he's about to go into the church and sees him and says, Young man, stop that. Those ants are put on this earth with a purpose, like all of God's creations. I'm going to go into the church and do my sermon. And when I come out, I want you to tell me three things on this earth that don't have a purpose. The priest goes in, does his sermon. He comes back out and says, well, son, can you tell me three things on this earth that have no purpose? Johnny says, yeah, your cock, a nun's cunt, and these fucking ants. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. You'll love, go to a great joke daily on TikTok. Go to tiktok.com forward slash at Jackie Martling. You suckered me in. Until the end, everything was sweet and nice and family friendly. And then you waited to the last two. Go to TikTok.com forward slash at Jackie Martling. You'll love Jackie's autobiography. The Joke Man bowed a stern. Great capitalization and a minimum of spelling mistakes. Perfect (laughs) gifts, personalized videos. Go to Cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. For more show information, go to Jokeland.com. Thank you, Jackie. So a woman says to a friend, my husband's lost all interest in sex. Her friend says, well, do you follow any kind of routine? She says, yeah, I always wear his favorite nightie with a high front and a low back. 
My friend says, well, tonight, we and I come backwards. So we'll have a low front and a high back. Maybe that'll catch his eye and get him excited. So that night, the woman puts on a nighty backwards, walks in front of her husband and says, notice anything different? He says, yeah, tonight the skid marks are on the front of that fucking nighty. <laughs> Good night, Jackie. I'll see you next. All right. Rodrigo in Mexico. How are you, sir? Rodrigo. Right. Rodrigo. Hi, David. Hello. How are Sorry, you? I'm printing something. Oh, okay. Uh, I wanted to read you something written almost 3,000 years ago, and it's important here, not because it's part of the Word of God, but because it's a historical record that reflects what we're supposed to have gotten over, a thing that is supposed to be better now. Here it is, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may say, sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with its own scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. I'll give you just one item from OpenSecrets.org. Tom Energy companies spent collectively $16.5 million lobbying Congress during the first six months of 2022 on a range of bills, including... And what? And, and what? A range of bills. A range of Several bills. Several bills. Range of bills, sorry. Yes. Including a push for hydrogen production. Today, about 90 95% of hydrogen fuel is, quote, great hydrogen, end quote, made from natural gas via a steam methane reformation process that produces more carbon dioxide than burning an equivalent amount of gasoline. It may be a bit more hidden than using dishonest scales, but we still have the poor subsidizing the rich, just as Israel had during the time of Prophet Amos. I also wanted to talk about sex workers under COVID-19. Does it make sense or not that if the government keeps tabs on the health of sex workers, it will be better able to respond to new health crises? Wouldn't spend a negligible amount of money keeping tax on the health of sex workers, save society billions in the long run. But we don't even know how many sex workers have died during the pandemic. The one group of workers that isn't even allowed to wear masks on the street. This is because of the basic contradictions of the capitalist system. We live in a world where spending a little money to save a lot of money goes against the things that the people who vote conser for conservatives want. And those people are against spending a little money to save a lot of money because they have been brainwashed for centuries, if not thousands of years, into believing that conservatives stand for what is morally right. And if grandma dies of easily preventable diseases, then that's the price you pay for being on the right with a capital R side of history. 
Last night I was downtown trying to buy medicine. I was told it was very cheap, so I was only worried about finding the right pharmacy still open. And it was, but I couldn't afford it. I almost had enough money, but not quite enough. Then I went to a different chain, and they only had half the formula, and not the important part. And of course, they had the original brand, which was over twice the price of the generic, which is was a surprise because usually the difference is several times larger. But long story short, for a second there, I did think, why isn't this other chain making money by selling the generic? And then I remembered, oh no, they know there's demand for the generic, but someone somewhere made the decision to just not make that generic to force people to buy the full branded product. I want you to think about this story, how often we could save money except someone decided to lose a little money on not being able to sell us off-brand products because they expect they can force us to buy fully branded products where the profit covers not only all the money spent in ads, but in some cases, Big Pharma will raise the price of a single pill to $1,000 just because they know desperate people will either come up with the money or just die. There's mm -hmm. more and more leftists these days trying to overcorrect from the so-called woke politics into <coughs> class reductionism because they don't realize abandoning the most politically marginalized communities for, beer, for fear of being labeled as woke is also falling for, pro, for propaganda. These leftists don't realize that regular people become socialism curious because they see racism or anti-LGBTQ attacks and want to do something about it, not only because they want to stand up for their own economic rights. We can let the right turn the concept of being woke into gibberish, or we can help people realize they only stand for dividing people. Angelica Duenas, who was on this show, is running for Congress again for California 29. She needs money. Uh, I love making fun of people for believing in the New York Times, but I'm out of time, so I say this, Linda Sarsour and Two of her Women's March co-founders spent a year refusing to distance themselves from Louis Farrakhan of the Nation of Islam, a well-known anti-Semite. Yes. And finally, and I promise this is unrelated to the previous warning, our friends at This Is Revolution are fundraising at GoFundMe to buy Jason Myers a new computer because his Obama-era one keeps crashing and causing trouble during live episodes feel free to drop in to help if you're tired of giving David Feldman money or you think you've given him too much. Thank you. <laughs> wow, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you, Rodrigo. That is the show. I want to thank my guests. Thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you to... Who did we have on today's show? Ethan Hershenfeld, Lane Hewitt. How funny was Lane Hewitt? Unbelievable. Unbelievably funny. Lane Hewitt playing Sir Griebling. Guy's a genius. Absolute genius. Uh, Lane Hewitt, Ethan Hershenfeld, Howie Klein, David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein. Professor Mary Ann Cummings, Professor Jonathan Bick, 
And then Jackie the Joke Man, Rodrigo, thank you to Dan. It was uh, a good show. Thank you so much. And thank you to the people who put this show together, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Professor Jonathan Bick, Joe in Norway, The Invisible Ninja, and of course, Dan Frankenberger. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be billionaire now you can make fun of me but i don't really care i have a plan to get there by and by as long as i stay healthy and i never die all i really need is a second job or a third lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day. I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Oh, yes, I am.